Hey guys, welcome to episode 145 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we want to start the show, as we always do, thanking all of our listeners. Whether it's for staying with us since the beginning, joining along the way, or listening for your first time today. We appreciate the fact that you let us spend so much time with you. And we also want to say thank you if you went above and beyond and did something amazing like leave us a review or check out our Patreon page. If you have become a supporter of ours on Patreon or upped your pledge since the last episode, we're going to thank you personally at the end of this show. If you want to get 83 episodes of us and two bonus episodes per month moving forward, you can join our Patreon page at patreon.com slash couple. So John, the case I have for you today is a wild one. Okay. And just whenever I like am on the prowl for like different cases to do, I guess you could say, I always think like, oh, I think I've seen everything. Of course. I mean, especially at this point. Right? <laughs> and I was shocked with this one. Like, I cannot believe this has not become something bigger. And actually, when I first started going through it, there's just so much information regarding this case out there that I was even thinking like, oh, my God, maybe we should do like a separate kind of like podcast mini series on it. It is so intense. That big? It's it's pretty big. I mean, there's so much detail you can get into. And today's episode is definitely going to be a long one. It could have been something that if I delved deeper into the trial aspect of it all, like it really could have been a whole season of a podcast. That's pretty crazy. And no, I can't find any podcast on it. Nobody has done it. I search in Apple, iTunes, like, and I can't find anything. I mean, I'm sure, like, some podcast might have covered, but I can't find anything. Well, that actually makes me even more excited because if there's, like, if no one's ever covered it and we're the first ones, that might be cool. I mean, the first ones that I can find. Right. I'm sure there's, like, an obscure sure. podcast out there <laughs> I'm that sure. definitely yeah, yeah. covered it, and <laughs> I'm just missing it. Okay. So there are many layers to it, and it's very complicated and also very controversial. So I want to preface this by saying that I'm going to give you the facts as they are. And from that, I'll let you and everyone else listening decide what you think is right and wrong. Sounds good. On November 12th, 1997, a 21-year-old woman was arrested for the brutal murder of a Denver, Colorado police officer, a decorated hero of the force, and a married father of a little girl. There's only one problem. When the officer was shot in the head, she was seated, belted, and handcuffed in the back of a police car. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. It had not even been a year since the country had dissected every aspect of a Colorado case when the chaos of the Liesl Allman case exploded the Mile High City into America's living rooms. It had been the John JonBenet Ramsey case in Boulder that had piqued the interest into the affluent communities of Colorado. Analysts and reporters criticized and poked fun at the Boulder Police Department 
and everyone wondered just what had happened to that little girl. And now it was a situation in Denver that had grasped the public's attention. But the morality of the city itself was never called into question, as it had been in Boulder. Progressive Denver was described as affluent, picturesque, a modern image of tolerance. I mean, all of those wealthy white people elected a black mayor twice at that point. But what was projected about the city and the truth were two separate things. There was a dark underbelly of Denver, and just months after the case that rocked America, it began to spill out. It seemed that the citizens and law enforcement agencies of the largest city in the Rocky Mountain West were at war with neo-Nazi skinheads. And I know that sounds wild, and it is, but it's also true. In an article written by the New York Times contributor James Brooke in 1997, he discussed the growing problems throughout the country. He found that according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, a group that tracks hate groups nationwide, that in the mid to late 1990s, there was a worrisome shift taking place within the despicable world of hate organizations. While enrollment rates in the Ku Klux Klan had dropped by 25%, which is wonderful, there had also been a 23% growth in organized skinhead groups. Now, according to a center spokesperson, they stated that generally when the economy is better, they see a fall in Klan membership because there's less of what they refer to as as scapegoat rage. And that's usually because the demographic that gets the jobs when the economy is doing well, middle-aged men, they don't have anything to be angry about. But over time, there was this, this shift when you see a upturn in the economy and you see a lowering of clan membership, there was this new increase in these neo-Nazi skinhead groups. And they attributed that fact to job competition. Because if these middle-aged men were getting all of their jobs because they had experience or time or whatever you want to say the reasons for them getting the job is, that means the job market has now become very competitive. And it's difficult for younger, less experienced workers to find jobs. And that leads to scapegoated rage of another kind. But because this demographic is young, often teenagers who did not go to college, they are and because of that, they're trying to enter the job market, this leads to anger and violence. So it's a shift that they were saying was taking place for the first time in the 90s. And that's what accounts for like the massive growth of the neo-Nazi or, or just skinhead organizations in general, because you now have these young kids who were angry, they can't make proper decisions. And They don't want to join the clan because they see that as something that these middle-aged men do. So they form a different kind of hate group, a more violent hate group, which is scary. It's almost as if like they are de-evolving into something even worse. Yeah. You know, because it's like both are equally as bad and... You know, I mean, I, I have nothing to say. I mean, they're terrible groups, terrible things that they stand for. But I feel like I think the groups of younger people are worse because they have the inability to distinguish right from wrong sometimes and get themselves into even worse situations than someone maybe older wouldn't take such a risk. 
Right. And we're talking about the clan of the 1990s and present day. We're not talking about the clan in, in the beginning of its growth or even in uh, Jim Crow era or then later the civil rights era where they were known as extremely violent organizations. Um, since then, the violence we're seeing more with like skinhead organizations than with the Klan. And that's what was reflective in the 1990s. And that's even why the movie American History X was made was because there was this explosion in uh, skinhead participation throughout the country. And the writer and director of that film wanted to show America how terrible this was and how it really did have a, a firm grip on parts of America's youth, which was terrifying. Yeah, I think it was a, a, a real big eye-opener, but I, I also can see it as a, a double-edged sword at the same time. Yes, because membership did also increase after the, the that movie came out. Yeah. And it's a very interesting phenomenon. Now, two groups, the Klan and the neo-Nazi skinheads, share a lot of the same white nationalist ideals. However, it is the idolatry of Hitler and his Nazi ideals that separate them. Now, I know that it seems bizarre that a group in the United States would feel that way, granted the country's position in World War II. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the people that join neo-Nazi skinhead organizations are not necessarily history buffs. But um, I do want to go through the reasons why these organizations find their place within the United States. So just take this little history journey with me. Okay. Just a little time capsule. It'll all make sense in the end. All right. It is very well historically documented that although Hitler was not a fan of the United States, calling it a mongrel race of people, he certainly approved of and praised many restrictive legislations in America, even gaining ideas and justifications of some of the laws that he was passing in Germany at the time. For example, Hitler praised American Jim Crow laws and segregation He was greatly in favor of the American eugenics legislation, which was the forced sterilization of patients within sanitariums as a means to perfect American citizens through genetics. While the eugenics law stood in many states, over 64,000 people were sterilized without consent. In the beginning, as I said, it was the disabled, and then it grew to include people for reasons such as sexual promiscuity, and poverty. Many criticized the decades-long movement by saying that it was a way for the American government to try and eradicate the poor and minority communities from their society. It is a scary concept that found even legal support in the Supreme Court, and America did not end until the ending of World War II when it came out what was happening um, within the Holocaust And that's when America stopped their eugenics movement. In addition to that, Hitler praised the very restrictive immigration laws that the United States had under the Immigration Act of 1924. The act, which remained until 1965, put a quota or highly restrictive, quantitatively discriminatory limit on immigrants from various countries or with certain origins. Now, this is a historical side note. For those of you who know a lot about the time period, I know the 1924 Act was passed because, well, under the guise of the United States trying to practice an isolationist foreign policy. However, if that were the case, it wouldn't have reflected quotas. However, and this is my opinion, 
If that were the case, then it would have reflected quotas across the board, meaning that every group coming into the United States would have had the same amount of quota. Instead, it reflected the anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic, anti-Eastern European sentiments that most Americans had at the time. And wouldn't it have been nice to lift those laws as Jews were trying to flee Europe post-Nazi takeover of Germany? Uh, Absolutely. Okay, so I'm straying a little too far away from the message there. But I'm saying this because when hate groups are seen in America, especially those who display imagery that we associate with pure evil, like a Klan robe or a swastika, it shocks people and and they say, like, here, not here. And I I find that often even with um, northern states or western states, like we're dealing with Colorado, and, you know, you have to say, of course, here. Like, look how it all started. I mean, look at how America started, period. Of course, there's hate organizations that that exist within America. And of course, there's hate organizations that have ideologies that we associate with pure evilness, like Nazi Germany. But that's because there was laws in the United States that were similar, like the eugenics movement. Yeah. And... So these morons who continue to idolize Hitler and romanticize the Third Reich, they take what he said about the United States and they go with it. And then that then becomes their racist mission to return America to the laws that were practiced almost 100 years ago. But it's also stated by the Southern Poverty Law Center that these skinhead groups are dangerous. They are young and angry kids making terrible decisions that are only fueled by drugs, alcohol, and a fascination with assault rifles. And that was what the city of Denver was dealing with in the mid to late 1990s. And as the century was coming to a close, the tensions between the Denver Police Department and the skinheads were very high. The people of Denver were nervous because these men and boys were holding rallies and were known to have these weapons. And the people just felt like they needed protection from their police force. And the Denver Police Department was trying their hardest to take down whatever members of this hate organization they could, but their numbers kept steadily increasing. And it was in that volatile environment that our story begins. So there is a huge backdrop to this case. It was this chaotic fear was kind of going about the city. And it was valid because this hateful group did have a lot of weapons and were well known within the drug trafficking within the city. 21-year-old Liesl Allman grew up in a loving middle-class family in Littleton, Colorado. It's crazy because this case kind of like touches into so many like larger true crime cases and so much does happen within this area so like like i mentioned kind of earlier on a year before in boulder which is like about half an hour away from denver there was the john benet ramsey case and then two years after this event takes place the shootings of columbine high school in littleton colorado where lisa allman grew up you have to wonder if like in some shape or form, they're connected in somehow. Like the shady underbelly of, of of Colorado just making all these weird events just pop up. Yeah, and then later the Aurora. Yeah, the shooting. Uh, the, one the movie the, theater shooting. Yeah, the movie theater shooting. And that is going to take cl- place close to here too. Aurora is mentioned in this case. So weird. 
Very interesting. So Lisa Ullman's father was a plumbing shop foreman at the local college, and her mother processed insurance claims. Her parents did get divorced when she was 11 years old, and her mother remarried afterwards. By all accounts, her father, mother, and stepfather co-parented very well and worked hard to create a loving and supportive environment for Liesl and her sibling. Those who knew Liesl said she was always a really fun girl. She was funny and warm and beautiful, and just everyone loved being around her. She was, in a sense, just an average teenager living in Colorado. She was seen and described herself as hippie-like. She loved going hiking, reading, taking pictures, and she loved, like, it was her hobby to work on stained glass projects with her mother. I mean, that this sounds like the perfect little town and the perfect little home with the perfect yes. little parents, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, th- honestly, of course you want to be, like, an outdoorsy person that loves that kind of stuff. You're in Colorado. Right. You know, like, when I think Colorado, I think mountains, skiing, log, uh, like, log cabins with awesome fireplaces and stuff. Like, that's what you think about Colorado. Yes, and she certainly took advantage of it. And she was, like, a lover of nature. And you're going to see that in the case and, like, in the life choices that she makes. All right. Lisa was described as being very intelligent in school with an aptitude for art. But when it came to going to college, she was very conflicted. She didn't know what she wanted to do. She didn't want to start going to college with no clear direction, like no major to claim or not knowing what to do. So she decided that she was going to take a year off. After high school, she moved to Alaska with a friend. She worked hard on a fishing boat, and the two lived in a cabin that had no electricity or running water. Oh, wow. They're really roughing it, huh? Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) Uh, When Liesl returned to Colorado, she told family members that she felt her time in Alaska was truly life-defining. And as often it does, um, that year off from school turned into several. See, so that's why they always tell you not to do that. (laughs) Yeah, they do. Because it's hard to get started to get back into it. Oh, of course. It definitely is. And then, and once you're kind of off that whole like mindset and thought process of being a student, it's very hard to become a student again. So after working some small jobs while living at home with her mother and stepfather in Littleton again, she fell into a bit of a rut. She was really trying to figure things out. And now remember, it was the 90s. So things were a little different and people's lives moved a little bit faster. So while her friends around her were in college and those who were not in college were getting married and having children, she was just kind of working and she felt like she had no direction. So she decided about taking another venture, this time close to home. It seemed like Liesl was really in search of something she was trying to figure out what her place was and i think a lot of people can identify with that yeah i think it's hard when you you yeah you are searching for like where you belong where you fit in with i guess the rest of society or your friend group or whatever so yeah you're right i think a lot of people could speak on that right like especially when you know in school like your life is either defined as You're going to college or you're not. And if you're not and you're a woman, then you are getting married and you're having kids. Right. That's your direction. And she was neither of those things. So where did she fit in? What was her 
piece in the puzzle, like where'd it go? So she packed up her car and headed to the town of Pine, located just 38 minutes southwest of Littleton. In the area that Liesel was headed to, there had been a massive forest fire, and there was an initiative to get people to come to the area to start working to replant all of the trees that had been lost. For the 20-year-old girl who loved nature, it was an opportunity and a chance to do some good. She was very much excited about it. So when Liesel first got to the area to begin working, she was staying at a house in Buffalo Creek with two other girlfriends. And a few weeks into being there, one of her friends introduced her to a man named Sean Chiver. Chiver was working on the Pine Project as a logger, and the two instantly hit it off. And shortly thereafter, they began dating. Wanting to be closer to her new boyfriend, Liesel decided to move out of her house with her friends and to the location where Chiver was staying. And later, her two girlfriends are actually going to follow her to the same location. The accommodations were reminiscent of her lodgings in Alaska. No heat, no running water. But Chiver was there, and that's what Liesel was most concerned about. Now, Sean Chiver had been staying at an old lodge. Um, it had been, it's very confusing how it was described and how I want to describe it to you. Uh, it had been described in many ways as like a hostel type situation. There were a lot of kids who had come to the area to work on replanting the trees. And they were, a lot of them were staying in this like decrepit wooden stone structure. Now, at one time, you could see that this building used to be a beautiful lodge. There was 11 rooms to stay in, but time had passed and it was looking like it was falling apart. There was areas that had tarps up because stuff had been rotting and it just was pretty gross. But there was a lot of people staying there. And as you can imagine, if you have all of these kids staying in this like hostel style hotel lodge situation with um, one place to shower, one place to go to the bathroom, one kitchen for all 11 rooms, it became like party central and quite disgusting. I could never do that. I don't know how people like. And there was no heat or running water. Yeah, I couldn't do that. No running water. No. Oh, 11, 11 people, one bathroom. I don't know. Well, it wasn't even like a, a <laughs> yeah. real, real bathroom. I mean, they had to like. So it was like an outhouse kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, uh, no, I can't do that. Could you imagine waking up in the middle of the night? I can't. I can't. And having I'm, to do that? I love my creature comforts. <laughs> I know. I know you would definitely not like. I would it. die. Neither would I. Neither would I. But I mean, I guess like when I was a kid, I was so different than I am right now. So like what you find acceptable is fine. Like if the person you're infatuated with is there, then you will suffer through it all. And that's kind of the way it was for Liesl because Sean was there. Oh, okay. Yes. Do we have a love interest? Well, they're dating, John. Never mind. I knew that. (laughs) But as you can imagine, all these kids drinking, partying together, they're all working together. I mean, there was a lot of drama and fighting between all of the people that were staying at the lodge. Well, that's an uncomfortable environment. Yes. 
And, you know, they were in their late teens and 20s. So like the petty stuff comes up and people started padlocking their rooms because things were getting stolen from their bedrooms. Ah, uh-huh, okay. So everyone had a padlock on the outside of their bedroom. Now, although Liesel had her own room, she spent most of her time in Chiver's room. She had only been in one other relationship, and it was a boyfriend in high school that had gotten physical with her once, and after that, she ended the relationship. So for being a woman who was about to turn 21, she was kind of inexperienced when it came to being in a relationship. And on the outside looking in, the truth of the coupling may have been a little bit more obvious. But when you're young and in love and in it, it never seems to be, does it? Liesl was infatuated with Chiver. She would make his food for him. She would buy him things. She was very much into him and trying to make him happy. And he played his part well. Slightly older than her, he knew what he had to do to make the young Liesl fall for him. Be sweet and affectionate at first. Give her what she wanted and what she needed, especially because she was away from her family and in a very transitional phase in her life. But after that, he had her wrapped around his finger. All right. That is no good. That is probably the worst thing that could happen in a relationship because I feel like this only leads down a really bad road of control and like coercive kind of weird control. Yeah. So I think that um, it was very obvious to everyone looking in that Chivers was using Liesel for money and for sex, which is very unfortunate because she really loved him or thought she did. Right. But it also plays back into the whole, you know, inexperience. Like when you lack that experience, maybe some knowledge that, you know, you know, A or B is going on, you know, you can't. If you've never experienced it before, you can't prepare for it yeah, or, or stop it. it. Yeah, exactly. Or just kind of stop that kind of uh, relationship. But I feel like it. it's also true, though, even if you do have the experience, when you're in it and you're infatuated, you can't see it. Well, it's because you want it to go, the, you know, that you want it to go the right way and you want to have, uh, you know, you want to be in a meaningful relationship. Nobody wants to admit that someone's using them or trying to control them. Yeah, no, that's not something people like to admit. No. So as their relationship continued, Liesel realized that Chiver was not the guy that he projected himself to be. Like she, He was also this like rough and tough logger that she really liked that kind of like persona. She thought he was like a bad boy kind of thing. We've all been there, ladies. <laughs> I know. Have you ever fallen for a bad boy, John? Uh, d- no, I can't say I have. It sucks you in. It's no, crazy. Uh, I can, I'm telling you, I have never experienced that one before. <laughs> can't relate. So she felt um, as if he was cheating on her. And in reality, he definitely was cheating on her. What she didn't know was that he had a common law wife, actually. I'm sorry. He was married? Not married, but he had a common law wife because they technically lived together for a long period of time. Oh, okay. But he's still with somebody else. But he's like to this common law wife. He's saying, I'm working in Buffalo Creek, in Pine, Buffalo Creek, that area to do this logging work. So she thinks he's just staying somewhere for work. Not realizing he's carrying on a whole relationship with someone that's that's there, Liesel. Right, but he's still cheating on this other person. Yeah, with, he's with Liesel. With Liesel, but she yeah. thinks she's 
in a relationship with him just solo. Oh, this is no good. But on top of that, he's cheating on both of them with other people. <laughs> what is what's this guy has a lot to offer? I'm guessing. I don't yeah, understand. I guess so. And how much older? Uh, that's another question I was going to ask you. How much older? Not necessarily that much older. Like five years older. Oh, okay. All right. She also learned things about his character and his past that she had not been made aware of from the beginning. She learned that he had been arrested many times. He was involved in things like fraud and burglary, stolen identity, and he had even gone to jail a few times under different names. This guy is definitely no good. Yeah, I would say bad news. The average person's not, you know, uh, you know, having a bunch of aliases. Check fraud, yeah. Yeah, like my name's John, but today I'm Adam. Like, yeah. You know. And you went to jail as Adam. Right, exactly. That's terrible. That's crazy. And once, Sean had even shown her a shoebox full of checkbooks with other people's names on them. Okay, so now it's identity fraud. Well, yeah, that's something he had stolen identity. It was something he had been arrested for. Now, Liesl and her friends admitted that this was a crazy time in their life. They had gone to Pine to plant trees and spend time in the mountains but at the lodge, it had become more about partying and complicated and toxic relationships that formed within their living space. And now Liesl was involved in, with a guy who didn't treat her right, was cheating on her, and was a criminal, and somehow got her to spend all of this money on him. Like, she bought him a snowboard, space heater, speaker. Like, she bought him so much stuff. And she was unsure of what she wanted to do in life. That was true, but she knew that she didn't want that to be her life. And I think that's a life lesson she learned at that lodge. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good life lesson and a wake-up call, I think, because here you are, you were with these 11 people, you're trying to plant trees and help the devastation of the of the of the forest after a forest fire, and this guy is just hunting down girls for sex and money. Know, like he's playing, crazy. he's playing on oh all God. these people, and they're like, "We're gonna play at trees." Like, I mean, I think yeah, he's taking down more than trees. <laughs> there's two directions that I think it's splitting off pretty quickly. Yeah, like it's just, but it's good though, at least that she experienced what could be her life if she doesn't make the right call. I think I think so. I think that was an important life lesson. Yeah, I think so. So embarrassed that another one of her ventures had not panned out the way she had hoped it would, she made a phone call to her mother asking if it would be okay if she moved back home. And of course, her mother and stepfather and father all agreed that if she wasn't happy where she was, it would be best if she came home. So again, very loving environment she's being raised in. Liesl was grateful for the support system that she always had between the three of them. But as comfortable as she was with them, she in no way wanted any of them to see where she'd been staying or meet Sean Shiver. Not only was the lodge in terrible condition, but she thought that if they met him, which would have been inevitable if they were helping her move stuff out, especially because she had things in Shiver's room, a lot of things actually, um, she thought that it would be like terrible. She was just so mortified that that had been her life experience right well i think it's because she comes from a good home where people really love and care about her and i'm i'm sure to some degree has given her the finer things so for them to see like where she's been living and who she's been associating with i think would be just be bad and probably make her parents look a little differently at her possibly yes yeah like listen i would have i liked when my parents moved me into my dorm in college but i wouldn't want wouldn't have wanted them to see it like 
in the midst of the week and all the crazy stuff that we were doing. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, no, I'll move myself. I'll, I'll move myself out. That's what I always said every year. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> like imagine instead of me coming to the door when you lived in the dorm with all those people. Imagine, like, if your mom and dad came to the door and one of your roommates just opened a door, like, in underwear and, and a bra. That's how John was created in my dorm. Right. So <laughs> um, imagine yeah, if that and then happened. we had all the alcohol everywhere. Right. And, the, oh, my God, my dad would have said, you're leaving Didn't school. Didn't we even, like, flip your couch or whatever to play beer pong? Yes. That's... Like, so, like, imagine, like, if, like, your mom and dad came over for that. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, like, like, I this totally get good. this. I get that she wouldn't want her parents to move her out. But I will give some insight. Kay's room was... Immaculate. Yes. Oh, that's exactly the word I was going to use. Super clean and organized, which I was very impressed with. And as I was walking to her, do- her, you know, to her room within this apartment, I would be able to like kind of like just briefly see other people's rooms, and they weren't as nice. No, I'm so you know you, she definitely she definitely kept clean things space. clean. Yeah, wasn't your typical college kid. Thank you for having my back. Here. I have your back. I was yeah. there. I'm a witness. <laughs> so. Instead of asking her parents to help, she enlisted the help of a longtime friend, Demetria Soriano. Demi, as everyone called her, had been close with Liesel when they went to high school together. The two were both self-proclaimed hippies, and they had shared a love of the Grateful Dead. They always went to concerts together, and they had always kind of kept in touch And when Liesl returned to Littleton after her stint in Alaska, the two had begun to hang out again. Once she decided she no longer wanted to be at the lodge, she had driven home, but without any of her things. And shortly after that, she went to go visit Demi, who was now living in an apartment with her boyfriend, Dion Gersey. So unbeknownst to Liesl, Demi had begun running in a really dangerous circle. She had just recently gone through a breakup with a long-term boyfriend, and she had been feeling really insecure. It had been hard for her to make the rent, so she rented a room to a guy who she had been acquaintances with since high school, Dion. And over time, the two began to start dating. Now, Dion was involved with an organized group of skinheads in Denver. Demi had actually participated in a lot of interviews regarding the case, and of that time in her life, she said she didn't really know why she had begun dating Dion. Because the fact that these two were dating was a bit of an anomaly. Demi is, as she defines herself, Indian, Spanish, Irish, English, and Filipino. Oh, wow. And Dion's a racist skinhead. That makes no sense. It makes no sense. But did she know what kind of circle that he was involved in? Yes, 100%. He made it very, very well known. Okay. All right. Um, and it's it's bizarre. It, uh, the way she explains it, she kind of can't explain it in the interviews that she gives. She gave uh, interviews with news outlets, with lawyers, with Vanity Fair. And she says... That at first it was dangerous but sexy. Like, so like was, it was like yeah. this forbidden love kind of thing. I see what you're saying. But she seemed to be very carefree about the fact that her boyfriend and his friends were very dangerous people. Like she even had one of her friends who was black. She introduced him to Dion and his friends. And the guy who later goes on to do an interview too, um, he 
shakes the hand of one of the friends and th- his sleeve lifts up and it reveals a swastika tattoo and the friend's kind of like what the hell like I don't want to be a part of this and it, it was weird like Demi acted like it was kind of no big deal it seems like she was in a really confusing place in her life as well Yes, yes, definitely seems so. So I think that that's really interesting that you say that because I I think that Demi and Liesel maybe as they're reconnecting as friends because Liesel has been at the lodge dealing with her crap with Sean Chiver. Right. And Demi's dealing with her stuff with Dion now. And she self-admittedly says, you know, at first it was dangerous and sexy, but then it became evil. And I think they're now realizing like, They'd went down the wrong paths, and now they have to right their wrongs. That makes sense. It yeah, does. That's an interesting connection that the two of them have at this specific time in their life. But Demi is still very much in this situation, and the couple live together in the Monaco Place Apartments, which is located on South Monaco Parkway in Denver. And those who knew Demi said that before Dion started living there and the two started dating... Demi had like band posters, tie dye stuff on the apartment. And Dion replaced that all with Confederate flags, weapons and like torture devices all over the walls. Like, how does she think that that's normal? I don't know. I think she at first thought this is exciting. And then I think it consumed and took over her life and then she couldn't leave. Do you think that maybe like, because I, I, I would think that like, she had friends that she could have commiserated with, especially like Liesel, right? I mean, she- they the two, it's very interesting, the friendship between the two of them. It seemed like they were kind of acquaintances that were getting back to being close friends like they were in high school. Like, you okay. know how you kind of separate from your friends, but then every once in a while come back close together? Right, right. It seemed like they were at that point. But I think that for Dion, the relationship with Demi was very complicated. And I think that he did, he was very controlling and abusive to her. And the fact that she was not white is what, in his mind, like, they were never equals in the relationship, that he was, like, beating her down. Okay. Because he was dominant and white. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. I think what Demi thought was, oh, this forbidden love exciting thing at first, he always saw as... I'm dominant over her. Okay. I mean, it makes sense. It really does. I mean, it's it's disgusting and sick yes, and sad. Of but So, um, and, an example of that would be one time when Liesel was home visiting from the lodge when she had kind of decided to start taking breaks from Sean. She had come home and slept over Demi's house, like the apartment that she shared with Dion. And while Liesel was sleeping in the guest room, she heard the couple get into a fight and they were getting into a physical fight. And Dion um, choked Demi until she passed out in the next room. Okay, I would have I left right away. <laughs> yeah. or, or just locked the door and like put every piece of furniture up against the door. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure she was kind of scared to leave because now your friend's passed out. Just you and him in this apartment. Yeah. That's scary. Very scary. So the next time that Liesel called Demi was to ask for help in moving things out of the lodge. She wouldn't be able to fit everything in her car, so she asked her friend for help. Liesel seemed upset because she was sad from the breakup, so Demi told her to come over. 
and that the next day they would get stuff from the apartment. Now, I will interject and just say this here because this is the beginning of the end. I think after she realized what the situation was like between Demi and Dion, that it was not a good choice to enlist the help of Demi to do this. I mean, yeah, also because you don't want any other kind of involvement from Dion coming into the picture in any way. Correct. You know, because you, you don't really don't know anything about him, really. And he's a very violent person. Yeah, and he's mixed with people that you do not want anything to do with. So the two women spent the night together drinking a bottle of sake and talking quietly about how soon they would both be rid of their no-good boyfriends. And they even discussed that after, you know, Liesl moves all of her stuff out of the lodge, she's going to go back to her house. And eventually Demi was going to find a way to break up with Dion and that maybe the two of them could live together. I mean, that's nice. So that was the plan that they were kind of formulating between the two of them. There was a conversation, though, that night with Dion about his assistance in helping Liesl move her things out of the lodge. Because Demi did have a car, but the plates were expired, so they had to take Dion's car. But Dion wasn't going to let Demi drive his car. So Dion brought up the fact that he was going to bring some friends to help him. See? Involvement. Yep. Now, he never said who he was bringing, and Liesl didn't know any of Dion's friends. I mean, she barely knew Dion, and she didn't know how many people he was thinking of bringing. So the following morning, Liesl went to Taco Bell for breakfast with Demi and Dion. It was there that the people that were going to be assisting them with the move met up with them. This was the first time that Liesl met Dion's friends, Matthias Jonig and Stephen Dupree. These men were clearly skinheads, like Dion, but something looked more sinister about them. They had pulled up in Jonig's red Trans Am, and Liesl did not know this at the time, but the red Trans Am was a stolen car. Of course it was. Teo, as Jonig was called, had Nazi tattoos, and there were ones that she could see and ones that she could not see. He had a lightning bolt tattoo, the swastika a swastika that was actually made of guns. Like, they weren't just straight lines. They were assault rifles in the middle of his back. Come on, man. Like, are you <laughs> kidding me? That is probably the worst thing you could ever do. Yeah. The Nazi slogan in German, which is blood and honor, as well as the words God of hate. Johnning had been arrested seven times and Dupree even more. Great. So we're in some really good company here. The six foot four, two hundred pound Jonig was known by his parole officer as a ticking time bomb. He was a frequent crystal meth user and lover of assault rifles. So those were the men that Dion had chosen to bring with him to help Liesel move. Alone with Demi in the Taco Bell, Liesel confessed to her that she didn't have a good feeling about this, and that maybe they should just go together to get her things from the lodge another day. Demi agreed with her that Teo as she and the friends called him, was dangerous, but that guys were all set to go and she didn't want to be the one to tell them that it was canceled because she knew that they would get mad and she didn't want to have a fight with Dion because those fights often turned very physical. So in fear of upsetting the guys, they went along to the lodge. 
I mean, listen, even though it's probably the wrong thing to do because you don't want to be associated with these people and also the the, the amount of violence that could take, you know, take place throughout their journey of, of moving things around um, is, is very great and scary. I think most people in the same situation would do the same thing out of fear. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, the intentions at this point are to go to the lodge to get the things out of Liesel's room, to get her things out of Chiver's room. And Liesel was vocal about the fact that Chiver's had been terrible to her in, her, in their relationship. Okay? So those were the three things that were known at this point. This is very complicated because now you have these three men who are very aggressive, doing drugs, You're now bringing them into a situation where they are going to assist her in taking things out of another man's room. This is not going to go well. No, this is a powder keg. Were they aware of the mistreatment that Shivers was to uh, Liesel? Yes. Okay, because you okay, so that's that's not good either because you don't think they're going to act on that. Yeah, because I think that not because they're concerned citizens or nice guys, but because they just want an excuse to be violent. Well, and that w- gives yeah. them one. They wake up and choose violence every, every day. Every single day. So, yeah. I mean, you could tell them, you know, you could tell them boo and they'll act on it, you know. Right. It's, uh, this is not good. So, the group of five head to the lodge in Buffalo Creek, setting in motion a series of events that would end in tragedy. Liesel and Demi thought that they were going to complete the drive together. The two girls riding with Dion and Jonig and Dupree in the other car. However, the men insisted that Demi stay with Dion and Dupree in their black Chevy Cavalier and Liesel ride with Jonig in the Trans Am. Later, Dion would reflect in a police interview that Jonig had wanted her to ride with him in the Trans Am, most likely because he wanted to have sex with Liesel because he found her attractive. That's so scary. And what Liesel did not know, in addition to the fact that the car she was riding in was stolen, was the fact that Jonik had with him an SKS rifle, a shotgun, and an AR-15, all full stocks, full barrels. So there is so many crimes I right here in front of us. It's almost like you're, you should be afraid of guilty by association because you have a guy that is on probation. He's driving in a stolen Trans Am. He's got three fully loaded guns with probably illegal uh, stocks and barrel, you know, because there's laws. They were extended. Yeah, there's laws on, uh, you know, the type of barrel that you can have, the length of a barrel. There's laws on, on different stocks that you're allowed to use, whether it's foldable, not foldable, if it's static, whatever. There's all these, like different names of things so the guns the car the fact that he's on probation everything and she's just sitting in the car just just hanging out you know she doesn't want to be there but that's a really dangerous situation yeah and i oftentimes because people don't want to rock the boat they don't want to do something that's going to cause chaos they choose to just go with situations that their guts are telling them there's something wrong here and i really can't blame them honestly when you you know if Liesel's in this car right now, I mean I cannot blame her. She he has he he's he looks like he's violent. He, most likely most likely he is. He has guns in the car. I mean she doesn't want anything to happen to herself. Yeah, so it's almost like a self preservation thing. It has to be. 
it's it's either that or the worst possible thing that could happen, right? Yeah. If she makes one bad move, you don't know if this guy. All three of them. All three of them. Yeah, you're right. Not just him. All three. Yeah. Because there's really nothing that those two women can do to, to defend make, themselves or or to de-escalate right anything that would go down and there's drugs involved most of them most of them yes, are on he drugs is, he is doing crystal meth yeah so this. you think his situational skills are good yeah no probably not probably i'm gonna go with no both vehicles made it to the lodge without incident once liesel got there she greeted some people that she knew and she and Demi began moving things from her room to the cars. Now, Dupree and Dion were helping the girls move things to the cars, but Johnny was like staying at the car, kind of like a lookout. Like he was not assisting in the help of the move. Okay, so do you think that they already had some sort of plan in play before they even my got opinion, there? My opinion is that they had... Men had something planned out. Right, because the moment you talked about the guns in the car and the fact that now he's a lookout makes me think that something's about to go down. I think that they had something planned. Okay. And that the girls did not know what was happening. Gotcha. So the way it worked at the lodge was that, like I said, there were padlocks on each door on the outside so people's things couldn't be stolen while they were gone. They grabbed Liesel's clothes, books, and other things. Um, Johnny, at one point, Demi is going to join Johnny at the car and they have a cigarette break together. So they share like a cigarette. Now, the rest of the time they were at the lodge, it's confusing. There's no straight answer here. So this kills me inside because I hate when I cannot give you for a fact, this is what took place. But everyone's account is different. And they all, count, like, contradict each other. Okay. So we don't necessarily know how this happened. But what we do know is that Liesl spent a lot of time in her ex-boyfriend Chiver's room. And she did have a lot of her things in there. She also had things that she believed that she gave him as a gift that she wanted to take back. At some point in the move, and we don't know who, because of... Over the years, there's been many accusations and counter accusations made, but somebody got bolt cutters and cut the padlock on Sean Chiver's door. Amid the flurry of activity in Chiver's room, it was claimed that a burglary took place and the following items were disputed as missing. The snowboard that Liesl had bought him for his birthday, two camcorders, one of which was Liesl's, two speakers, a tripod and an amplifier, and two boxes of CDs, some of which belonged to Liesel. At some point, Liesel was aware that things were being taken from Chiver's room that were not hers, and she felt as if there was nothing she could say. The five people that had gone there for the move that day had everything loaded up in the car, all of Liesel's things and some of Chiver's things, and they left. So now it's like breaking and entering and burglary <laughs> yeah. from the from his apartment or room or whatever Correct. yep witnesses from the lodge said that the red car sped away and the black one followed however minutes later the black cavalier returned 
and Stephen Dupree ran back into Chiver's room and helped himself to another box of CDs. That's why I said there was two boxes of CDs that were disputed as missing. Okay. And then that car left again. One of Sean Chiver's friends wrote down Johnig's license plate number because that was the car that Liesel had gotten into. Another resident of the lodge concerned that people were taking things that didn't belong to them had called 911 to report a burglary in process. So the police arrived basically just as those cars had left. And the people at the lodge said they just left. So the police cars that responded followed the Red Trans Am and the Black Cavalier. This is bad news bears. Right. Okay. So now we're involved in a police chase. There's a lot going on here. I, I see why you're taking this nice and slow because there's a lot of pieces, a lot there's of moving parts. There's so much happening. Okay. So when it was clear that they were being followed, it seemed as if there was a plan already in motion. And Jonig and Dion broke off in separate directions. Because the police had the license plate and description of the stolen things and the girl who was responsible being in the red Trans Am, they followed the red Trans Am and not the black Cavalier. Okay. But that plan of splitting off must have been to try to get cops off of them. Yes. Maybe by doing so it would split half the force into two. Yes. Yeah. So, um, John Egg, who was high on meth at the time, was driving like a bat out of hell. Liesel was terrified in the passenger seat as the Trans Am wildly zigzagged around the corkscrew icy Highway 285. As the police cars followed behind them with their sirens blaring, Liesel asked Jonig if he was going to stop, and he said no. Once Jonig got the impression that he was not going to lose the cops, he reached around into his back seat and grabbed one of his guns. He barked at Liesel to grab the wheel, and he leaned out of the driver's side window and took aim at the police officers behind him. The wheel had jerked, and the car had veered off the road, so Liesel grabbed the steering wheel to steady the car, and she heard loud bangs. Johnning had fired at the police cruiser. This is insane. This is like a uh, like a getaway car, like a getaway scene like from a movie. Yeah, but now it looks like she's assisting yes, him by grabbing the wheel. It does. Now, a lot of things happen during this chase. It's a, lo- it's a 20-mile chase. So in the process, they do get into a minor accident with another car. The car spins, stops for a second. People observe the two of them. Somebody sees Jonig hit Liesel. But she stays in the car and doesn't get out. Then they pass a school. And it's right around the time that school's getting out. And they see the passenger side door open and a laundry basket falls out. But then the door closes. So later on, Liesel's going to say that she was trying to get out of the car at that time. But he had grabbed her and the laundry basket in her lap fell out the car. I mean, okay. I mean, I can believe that. I think uh, I think she was trying to make every attempt yeah. to not die here. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and then it's later on in the chase, just as they're about to hit Denver, 
Um, because don't forget, these police are coming from Buffalo Creek, which is like a good 38 minutes away from where Denver is. Now they're approaching into Denver. So all of the police officers, as the different jurisdictions are being hit, are listening with their radios so they can find out, okay, where are they going next? Like, what's their final destination? So that's closer to the Denver border that the fires are shot at the police officer. And I don't know if the police car was hit or if they wanted to prevent gunfire on the roads or call in a stronger, you know, chase or the people that they're approaching. But the cruiser that they had shot at backed up. Maybe in the thought process of we're going to tell police of Denver that they're headed into Denver will back up to make them think that they're not being chased so we can more easily find them. I mean, there's, yeah, that is probably what's going on. You have jurisdictions and everything, but it's also to de-escalate the situation. Correct. Because what's going to wind up happening is sometimes, you know, when there's pursuits in order to stop the, the, uh, the, the probability of there being more casualties due to the fact that he's driving erratically, they'll back off. So it's probably and, a mix of everything. And here. because he's shooting he's a shooting weapon. Shooting a now. weapon, yeah. So I think they're just de escalating and the and they're probably in talks with other departments that are in the area, maybe state police. They could also be setting up spike strips to stop him. There's so many things. So that's why you would back off. Yes. So John Egg drove with Liesel, then back to the Monaco Place apartments where everyone agreed to meet up, like with Dion and Demi and uh, Stephen Dupree. But what John Egg and Liesel did not know was that a Denver police officer, Jason Brake, had been on patrol that day and had been listening to the whole chase over his radio. Shortly after the chatter ended, and all units on patrol were told to be on the lookout for a red Trans Am with John Egg's plate numbers, uh, Brake saw the vehicle. And he wanted to play it smart because the person within the car he knew was armed and dangerous. So he watched as the vehicle pulled into the Monaco Place apartment complex, and he called it in. The suspects had parked in the Monaco Place apartments. Brake and his partner watched to see what the two individuals in the car did as they waited for backup. That must be so terrifying as a police officer to, like, be the one to find, you know, you're on the lookout, right, and you're the one. You and your partner are the one that find the suspect in question, and now you're wait. You call it in. Now you're waiting to be told what to do when this guy is armed and dangerous. Right. Right. What a what a what a situation that you're putting yourself through. Like every every inch of your body is probably on pins and needles, just like yeah, waiting to see what's gonna go down. The adrenaline. Yeah. That is because so scary. Now this guy is fired at a police officer. Yes. So they're gonna call in the whole cavalry. Oh yeah. Another thing, too, I was thinking of is if it got bad enough, they also have helicopters as well. So I'm right. sure that's also another reason why they would back off of a scene, too. You can't outrun a helicopter. It's impossible. No. They'll know where you're going. Yeah. So as soon as the car was parked, Liesel, lucky to be alive, made a break for Demi and Dion's apartment. And for the visual, apartment doors were not, like, out in the open. It wasn't like a garden apartment. It was like, I mean... I'll explain it better for you listeners, but it was exactly like um, the apartments we had that we lived in 
before we bought this house where there's ah. a there's a hallway and then an gotcha. alcove where the doors all are. Oh, okay. Okay. So, in order to get to apartment doors, you had to walk down an entrance hallway first. So there's going to when you go into the opening of this hallway, there's going to be stairs to your left because there's apartments on the second floor, and then you're going to go straight ahead and down a hallway and then you'll see some apartment doors. But this was kind of bigger. And if you went to your left, there was a second hallway where there was even more doors. Okay. So it's actually, there's actually a lot of apartments here. Oh, this is a huge apartment complex. Huge. So Johnig was close behind Liesel and his guns were in tow. He was frantic and trying desperately to open the lock on the front door of Dion and Demi's apartment. But before he could, Jason Brake and his partner arrived down the hallway. They instructed Liesel and Johnig to put their hands up and come closer. When it came to positioning, Brake was completely outside and it was his partner that was at the beginning of the hallway. Both parties were instructed to slowly make their way out of the entrance towards them. Liesel complied quicker than Johnig did. So she was the first one to start approaching um, the hallway to get out of that alcove. Brake's partner grabbed Liesel, yanked her out of the hallway, and down to the ground. The officer dug his knee into her back and was calling her a bitch and handcuffing her. So she was confused as to what was happening and why she was being handled so aggressively. Because her thought process was, get me away from him. But yeah. they don't know this. Of so course not. It's a very frantic situation. So Liesel was being brought to the cruiser. So those two officers said they were going to bring her to their cruiser and two other officers had now arrived at the scene and they were the ones who were going to get Johnig, who was in a clear view, but down the hallway from them. And they could only see down into the entrance of the, the first hallway, but they, they could see that it, you could go left, but obviously they couldn't see because the hallway turns. So when that happens... Johnig quickly runs to the left down the alcove. The two officers that it's now their job to arrest Johnig don't aren't familiar with the apartment complex. They don't really know how it works. So when they see him bolt, they don't know that he's bolting to his guns. They think he's bolting to leave the alcove. Like he they think there's an entrance on the other side. I see what you're like saying. Like, he's okay. running to the back of the right. building. Right, there's a w- another way out of the apartment complex. So the two of them run around the building. Ah, oh, shoot. Because right. they think they're going to catch him in the back. But Johnig sees that they left, so he runs out of the hallway in the alcove. And now he's running through the apartment complex for cover, and he has all of his weapons with him. This is crazy. I'm just a little confused not by what you said but just by the protocol like i'm not you know i'm not saying that they did anything wrong i'm just saying i'm sure that they were told that they were armed and dangerous yeah you have 
one that has spotted them waiting for backup to arrive. The backup arrives, but they've already engaged. So the first two cops that found them break. He already has engaged. Correct. I think it's not a good idea to have the one partner handcuffing this woman on the ground and then her and then him taking her to the police car. They both do. Well, both of them. That that to me that's even worse now. And now the police they they don't just take her to the police car. So now she's cuffed. They belt her in the back seat of the police car and then they drive their cruiser to the far parking lot. So now she's far away from the apartment buildings. Yeah, I I think I would have gone about this whole the whole thing differently. When the first people are there, when the first cops are there, they should have been where they were standing, asking everybody to come move forward, blah blah blah, you know that whole thing. The secondary police officers that came up as backup, they should have went around to the other side of the building to scope it out, right? Or be told that there were other cops in the area that were looking around the rest of the complex. Because you also have to consider there are, are other families and people in this apartment complex, and he's armed and dangerous. John, that is ne- that's very yeah. that's a very small thought process in this whole. No, thing. I'm I, I'm aware, but like what I'm saying is no, you'll be shocked. Oh, how little there is concerned about the families that are yeah, in this it, it should be. It should be something that is dumb. And then to cordon off the area and have every uh, available unit there to kind of make sure that there's no uh, holes in like where anybody could escape or leave. Because now at this point, if you're confronting them straight up, they're in a hallway, you're, you're confronting them straight up. You, you now have other officers that can come in from behind or from the side or just making sure no one can leave that area. Right. I think that what you're saying makes sense, but I'm sure that at this point, because we have to remember this is 1997, so this is pre-mass shooter chaos that America is dealing with, right? So these officers have never been trained in what they're going to have to face at the yeah. Monaco Place apartments, I, yeah. because this is even before Columbine. Right. There is um, no mass shooting training. And further to your point, they also don't even understand or know where are the people that were in the black car. So I think it goes beyond just not knowing what's going on with Johnig and the weapons that he has. There's also other people that they are unaware of. So I think that they should have went in a little bit more cautiously and careful. Because they don't know what the situation is. Yeah, and also I want to add one other thing. I know back in like the early, it could have been the late '80s, early '90s. I'm not too sure. I can't really speak too much on like the actual, like all the facts. But I do know that there were a couple of incidents back in that time period there between like late '80s, early '90s, where a lot of crimes, like you know, uh, bank robberies and other uh, things of that nature. Um, were being conducted with people who were armed to the teeth with assault rifles, uh, all, all different types of guns, you know, like anything, everything you can imagine, body armor. And it got to the point where these cops are trying to 
subdue or or take out these people with these crazy weapons and all they have is little pistols. Yeah. So I believe at some point in the 90s there was something put into effect where it was mandatory for cops to have assault rifles in the back of their trunks and their cars to match force with force because they were outgunned and outmanned by what was taking place during that by time period. By the weapons that other people have. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So they needed to kind of have that same force potential that they were being faced with. Yes. Um, and also, there were a couple Isn't of things. Isn't that sad? It is, yeah. And then I, I, I'm, I don't know if this is a law or, or, or something in the, in the code, but I believe that suspects of that nature, when they got body armor and stuff on, I believe they're trained to like just shoot right for the head. Well, you have to. Because you have no other choice. So, uh, yeah, I know there was a lot of things implemented during that time period that would, would probably have even changed this outcome as well. Well, I mean, when when others arrive, there it is a different situation. But, I mean, these are the initial two responding cruisers on the scene. So it is very chaotic. And I understand that because they haven't received mass shooting training. No. But they're about to deal with the situation in a very real way, which is terrifying. Um, so back at the police car, the two officers that had arrested Liesl Allman were asking her about John Egg. Um, they're asking him where did they're asking her where did he run to? What weapons does he have? And Liesl doesn't give them any information. She doesn't say what his name is. At first, she says the car was a green, not red. Um, she's hindering them, right? In the knowledge that they could right. have. She's stalling. She is. But now, the better question here is: Ask yourself: Is she is she saying the wrong things to protect? people that she's involved with or is it because she's in shock imagine someone that has probably never seen law enforcement do that to her she's never been arrested before all the things that are rushing through your mind if you were arrested and knocked to the ground and put in a car imagine how distraught you would be so it's a possibility that she's it's not that she's wants to do that or say the wrong thing it's that she's in no uh, state of mind to say the right thing correct and I'm, and I'm going to give you a third option, too. Okay. We don't know what he has threatened her with for that whole 20-mile journey. Oh, 100%. So she could be terrified to give any information regarding him because she's in fear for her own safety. Yeah, I agree. And her family's, potentially, not knowing what he threatened. So by then, like I said, I said the cavalry was coming in. They arrived. Okay. Dozens of Denver police officers had responded to the call. A man with an assault rifle had opened fire on a fellow officer during the police chase. Now, they don't know where he is. He had to be stopped and there, and the public safety was at risk. Like, they had to take John Egg down. No question about it. Yeah. And that's what those dozens of officers were rushing to do at the scene. So it was kind of like this swarm of officers just like went down like they're armed with safety gear and they descend upon this massive apartment complex 22 buildings yeah it's a lot it's huge yeah they don't know where he ran to that's crazy and they don't even have time or the means to tell the people of this complex what's happening well, that's that's another thing that you run into. It's like, what do you do? Get on a megaphone and scream, "Everybody, stay in your stay indoors!" Yeah. Like, do you do that and like make people freak out? I mean, like, what do you do? Well, I would say the hail of bullets is going to tell them that they should get down. Yeah, probably. So, um, 
Jonig had worked his way into the alcove of another apartment building's front entranceway. And he has his SKS semi-automatic assault rifle with him, and he begins to fire. All of the officers went into productive positions behind walls and bushes surrounding the complex. More rounds were being fired and were being returned by hundreds of rounds from the officers. So he's shooting and he's getting hundreds of rounds back at him at the same time from the weapons that they have. And they don't even know where to where to aim. So they're just shooting. Yeah, that's that's while you're doing this. I understand why you're shooting like you are, but I mean, if one person just steps out of their apartment, they're dead. John, glass and dust flew everywhere. Bullet holes penetrated the walls of the buildings. They were going through windows. All of the residents just got down. They just got down on the ground and prayed that a bullet didn't hit them. It's actually a miracle that nobody got hit. It is a miracle that nobody died in the apartment. Because we're not talking about little rounds here we're talking he's using an sks i mean those are big round like these are like ammunition that can go through a wall yeah we're not talking about like a, a nine millimeter bullet we're talking about i i think sks they're like a 762 round they're massive they're like this big like i mean they 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 do a lot of damage and half the time you know those kind of rounds can go right through body armor if it can go right through body armor it can go right through a wall right you have to Keep that in mind. Even if he was to shoot only like 20 rounds, let's say. Those 20 rounds can go through a car door. That's scary. Yeah. Well, amidst the chaos, an officer thought that he saw where the shots were being fired from. The man who moved to try and find Jonig's location was Officer Bruce Vanderjat. Vanderjat had responded to the call with his partner, Sergeant Dean Jones. Vanderjat was a hero within the Denver Police Department. He was an 11-year veteran, and he had twice received Distinguished Service Cross, once for disarming a gunman at the Porter Memorial Hospital and the other for saving the occupants of a burning building. Vanderjat was a great police officer. He was very well-respected and loved by those around him, and he was also a family man. His wife's name was Anna, And they had just had a daughter. She was two years old, but she was still a baby. As Vanderjap made his way into the apartment hallway, his officers had his back. He peeked around the wall into the alcove, and before he could even react, a barrage of bullets hit the side of his head and the wall he had peeked around. The officer behind him was aware that shots had been fired, But at first he thought that maybe Vanderjat was okay because he stayed standing. But then his body swayed in a very unnatural way and he fell, revealing to the officer behind him the devastating head wound that he had suffered. So he thought that Johnny was around the corner. The bullet the bullets from Jonig had stopped for a significant amount of time. So Vanderjat thought that he didn't have any more ammunition left. Right. So when he peeks around into the alcove to see if he's there, that's when Jonig fired. So he was just waiting, waiting around the corner, aiming down sights probably. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the head wound was massive. There was no way he was going to survive that. 
and he even had the fragments of the wall in his face because the bullets hit the wall too. Yeah, the bullet probably went through the wall into him. Yeah. Yeah. So. <sighs> That's pretty crazy. Yeah. And Bruce Vanderjat was killed in the line of duty that day. So the other officers had backed up at that point. They all knew where Jonig was. Um, there was a final hail of gunfire. And in the process, nine more bullets penetrated the body of Officer Vanderjat. Fire had stopped coming from Jonig. So they were thinking, like, had, did we shoot him? Did he run out of ammunition? Like, what's happening? Um, at that point, a SWAT team is called in because they know his exact location. And they tentatively poke a mirror around the corner to see what's going on inside yeah. the alcove. And they received their answer. Johnny was dead. Oh, really? I guess from what, uh, I guess just more gunfire that they shot, right? Or maybe blood out? Well, he had been hit by a bullet that was the property of the Denver Police Department, but on his own terms. During the final shootout, Johnig ran out of ammunition. He crawled over to the body of 47-year-old Officer Vanderjat. He took his service weapon from him, and he shot himself underneath his chin. Oh, okay. It had been three hours since the Red Trans Am had pulled into the Monaco Place apartments, and in that time, two people had died, and lives would be changed forever. It, it's it's so crazy, though, because you see, this is where I, f I find that this whole incident could have been avoided. Because, like you said, they've never been formally trained in any kind of incident like this or like any kind of situation like mass this. shooting right so yes your average officer might not be trained in especially during this time period probably not trained in, in situations like this but you know who is the SWAT teams they are they're trained for this they have the gear for it they're head and toe and armor they even have ballistic shields they have tools like cameras and, and mirrors and other devices to gain entry I mean, yeah. I'm not even kidding. They can go into one room and probably cut a wall down or break through a wall and just go through the other side. Well, I think what the thought process was here was that there are citizens within the apartment complexes and we're trying to stop this as quickly as possible. And it's unfortunately, it's very sad, but this is what our law enforcement officers do. They they put their lives on the line every single day. And sometimes things like this happen and it's devastating and it's tragic and it makes us kind of understand the sacrifices that they make every day like can you imagine going to work and you don't know if it's going to happen oh 100 it's and a scary it thought is, it is a lack of training and we just never had mass shootings on this level happen before so it's like you can't train train people for something that you never know that they're going to encounter right because this is yeah. pre-columbine no i i get that and i understand that the situation here was kind of insane. I mean, they were lacking a lot of information about what was going on and what they were walking into. And that's why they were upset with Lisa. Right. Now, I get that. But my, I'm still going to hold on to the moment they found out of where his location was. Instead of having police officers, you know, just trying to rush this man, the best thing that they could have done was to wait for SWAT team to come in to do to use those tactical maneuvers and tactical gear to take out a suspect with very high powered 
rifles and ammunition. Yeah. No, I agree it, with it you. It only makes sense for that to have taken place once they could determine where the shooter was, which they already did. So, I... Well, they it, only did because an officer died. Well, if that's that never true. happened, they would have not found. They would have not known where he was. I think at some point they would have had. He wouldn't have gotten out of there. Yeah. No. 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 He was not going to get out so, of there. He was quite yeah. literally backed into a corner. I'm just saying though that, like, you know, even though this guy is a hero, I and I do look at him like a hero. I I feel like we don't even have to sit here and say in this episode that he died because if they would have had the if they would have made the the call to pull back the regular officers pull him back keep him at the line and let SWAT go in yes. it would have been a totally different situation i agree with you that the call from above officer vanderjat's position should have been everyone stand down we're letting SWAT go in correct yeah. that that's how i feel oh i agree with you yeah. cuz that would have saved this man's life right it would have saved this man's life. This, I mean, like, look at those families now without their husband and father. Yeah. It's just like, I hate to hear it, you know? Well, news of the deadly shootout was all over the television. The citizens of Denver were glued to their TV screens and radios. The police were in a gunfire exchange with a skinhead who had an assault rifle, and an officer was down. It was wild. More rounds had been fired on November 12, 1997, than any other day in Denver police history. And that stands till t- today. Wow. Among the citizens watching the live developments of the scuffle were the families of the officers that were risking their lives to protect the people of the apartment complex and the city itself. Anna Vanderjat was among them. She knew her husband was working. And based on the fact that they needed a large response, she knew that he had to be there. She heard that an officer was down and prayed that it was not Bruce. She watched as the media coverage switched from the aftermath of the apartment complex to the hospital. An ambulance pulled up in front of the emergency room, but the EMTs were moving at a slow pace. So that could only mean one thing. The officer that was down had died. As the gurney was taken out of the ambulance, Anna saw that a crisp white sheet had been respectfully draped over his body as to preserve his dignity and block the view from the hungry cameras of the media. But below the officer's knees were exposed, and she lost it. It was Bruce. He wore black cowboy boots to work every day, and there they were on the stretcher. That's really sad. Especially to find out that way. Yeah. Like, I know it's everything's still so fresh, and they're probably going through so much stuff, the department, that they probably, it just kind of got glossed over because there's so much going on. I mean, you're trying to, you're trying to, like, figure out, like, everything about this. Who are, who's involved? Right. Where are the others? What's going on? Where's the other car? You know, why is the one woman not giving information to police while it's happening? Like, there's just so many things. Right. So. And, you know. That's how Anna realized her husband was dead. That's terrible. And her thoughts went immediately to her two-year-old daughter. And in her head, she thought they stole her father from her. Yeah. That's what they did. And once the initial threat had been taken out, the adrenaline that the police officers involved with the shootout had began to dissipate. It was then that they were able to slowly come to terms with the reality that they had lost a hero that day. Bruce had been killed. 
The entire department was in a state of mourning. But that is not to say they didn't understand the gravity of the situation from the moment it happened. As soon as word spread that Johnny had been killed, the officers that were holding Liesel on the other side of the parking lot approached her and said, You're going down for murder. You're going to go down. Because now that the dust had settled and a brother had been murdered, the Denver Police Department was looking for someone to blame for the tragedy. And there was Lisa Lullman. I would love to know more about that because unless there's some sort of law or something that makes her responsible somehow, I don't know how she didn't kill anybody. The only thing that she's, well, quote-unquote, guilty for isn't being forthcoming with details which i previously said could be due to shock right right so it's not like she pulled the trigger liesel allman was then read her rights and taken in for questioning down at the police station when her interview began she was asked by the district attorney and the detective on the case if she felt as if her statements were coerced in any way she did say that when she had initially been arrested, that the officer had threatened her. They asked her if she felt coerced at the moment and if she was talking to them because that the officer had threatened her. And she said no to both questions, so the interview proceeded. Throughout the entire interview process, Liesl Allman did herself zero favors. She was evasive about who she had been with that day, and she was very unclear about what happened. She really was tight-lipped, and she was leading police on kind of like a, a wild goose chase. Like, she wasn't being helpful. Which is odd to me, because I feel like she would be the type to be forthcoming and to help them, but it seems here like she's just not. Now, the, right now, where this is taking place, are we actually at the police station now? Correct, yes, okay. and it's being videotaped. Okay, see, it's like, when you're in a situation like this, in my opinion, you have two choices. You could either... Lawyer up, right? Or just explain everything out in the open because you, if you feel like you have nothing to hide or you're not involved, I mean, then I would just tell them everything that you know. You don't even have to go into extreme detail. You just have to say something. You could say something along the lines of, this is what I needed to do today. I'm friends with this person who was associated with this guy. They were there to help me move. Like, this isn't hard. You know what I mean? Well, I get what you're saying because I understand the frustration in us knowing that there was no clearly known association between her and the three men that were there. And that it's not like she had brought them with her for nefarious purposes. But, I mean, although that is up for debate. But what I think is happening here is Liesl, first of all, does not know that Johnig has... Uh, died by suicide. Okay. So because of that, I think she's nervous that if she gives information out about these men, that something bad is going to happen to her. I'm sure he was threatening her while they were driving. Right. And I agree with you. But that is the time while you're there at the police station that these are the things that you explain. And I agree with you. So once again, you either lawyer up right now or you tell them everything because look, you're in you're in deep shit because an officer died. Th- they are not going to go easy on you. That's their brother. They're not going to not do that. They're if anything, in my opinion, right. they're going to go hard as hard as hell. And on that's her. the second thing I was going to say. She is in an environment where they want to nail her. Correct. Because they want 
Jonig is dead. They want someone to suffer for what happened to Bruce Vanderjat. Of course. I mean, I, I, I can understand. You have a family now that lost someone that's very important to them. A and hero you, a in hero, your department. Right. So, I mean, look, it this is a very difficult thing, and I don't think that we even have all the information in front of us right now. Yeah, it gets so, crazier. I agree with you. The biggest mistake she ha- is making is not getting an attorney right now. And she continues not only this interview, but a second interview, and it's bad. You know what I think, too? I think a lot of people think, oh, just because it's recorded that you're okay, and that is not the case. Because there are, I would say, a handful of, like, either things I've watched or even things with us that I've listened to where it was recorded and it did no justice to help that person. Right. You know, or, like, it took getting a person who is, like, what's it, like a, like a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A specialist or somebody that is in a field that can explain that kind of, like, leading or question leading. Yes. You know what I So it requires you to get a professional to get you out of something like that. So even though it, the whole conversation is recorded, it could still be used against you. It's like you have to work even harder, um, you know, to get yourself out of that situation. Yeah, and every single statement you make is going to be scrutinized. So that becomes really complicated because people sometimes under pressure say things that they don't necessarily mean or they've been led to say. I mean, Jesus, I, I do it all the time. And just even talking to you, I make mistakes all the time. I couldn't imagine being under immense an immense amount of pressure <laughs> and say the wrong thing. They're like, what'd right. you do? What'd you say? Did you say you killed somebody? No, no, no. I meant, you know, like, you know, it could yeah, be you anything. You do always talk yourself into a hole. Just dig myself <laughs> straight down. Six feet, might as well, you know? Ugh. So it was really unclear as to what happened at the lodge And we will get to that later because a lot of information comes out about that. But she said shortly after they left the lodge um, with Jonig, the police started to chase them. She explained that she had been terrified. She thought she was going to die in the car. He was speeding around windy roads and weaving in and out of traffic. He was crossing the median. And at one point he was going up to speeds of 120 miles per hour which is 193 kilometers. I mean, yeah, kilometers per hour. Are you sure? It is. I I looked it up. (laughs) Okay. I did. You think I would just randomly make up that number? No, no, no. That did happen once when um, it was my bachelorette party and we had to take Ubers everywhere that we went because we were being responsible. And one of the driver's cars was like reading kilometers. And I was maybe after a few drinks where were you that in his car city. was in kilometers i don't know it, i don't know it was weird but i was like slow down slow down he's like it's in kilometers oh i thought he was God. going so fast you should have seen the guy that i had at my bachelor party he made a minivan look like it was a ferrari that's awesome and it was pretty insane i'm like at least if he gets pulled over it's not me it's him you know yeah <laughs> so um she said she asked him if they were going to pull over and he told her that they weren't And that was when he got his weapon out and shot at the police cruiser behind them. The detective asked Liesl what her role in that had been, and she did admit that she grabbed the wheel when he told her to because otherwise they would have crashed. She said, and I quote, it was only for like three seconds. At another point in the interview, she said, it's all kind of blurry to me. The order had happened. But we ended up hitting a car, like head on, And then there was traffic behind us. And at that point, I opened the car door and wanted to get out. And he told me, 
what the fuck are you doing? Get back in here and all this shit. And he was very angry. I just wanted it to be over. I listened to him because he had a huge gun. I stayed in the car. He shut the door and he sped off again. And that was what was witnessed um, by the school when the door opened and the laundry basket fell out. Liesl also says that something struck her on the back of the head at the moment of impact. So she must have kind of either what they had packed into his back seat because they were moving her or the headrest. She must have slammed her head backwards when they did collide with the car at one point. Okay. The Trans Am had smashed into a BMW on East Eastman Avenue. And that's what the detectives later told her. I was just like praying to myself, praying to God that everything would end soon and everyone would be all right. That's the statement she made. So during that whole description and throughout the whole narrative, Liesl never reveals Jonik's name. Instead, she refers to the man who had been driving the car with her as Sardine. She said that was his nickname and what people called him. There's really no explanation as to why she picked this nickname, and that's never what Jonig was ever referred to as. So it was very obvious that she was frightened of this man, and she wasn't revealing his identity because she didn't want to get in trouble or be harmed. And at one point in the interview, she reveals how fearful she is, and she refers to herself as a walking dead person. Now, now I wonder if... Maybe she thought, because at this point she still doesn't know that he killed himself, right? No, she does not. So is it possible that not only is she afraid of him, but maybe also of Dion if he finds out that she's ratting on his men? Yeah, I think that it. even if she found out that Johnny was dead, there's still this whole violent organization that he's a part of. And he was, I don't want to say the head of that little small group but a lot of people looked up to him because he was so crazy and out of control and we will find out later obsessed with weapons and had a lot of them so i think she was nervous of what the retribution would be if she were to give names also not just for herself but also her friend too you know if you're thinking about that as well her friend and her family is probably threatened so i i could understand why She's not being as forthcoming as you would think. No. But I I mean, I guess you really can't, unless you're in the situation, you really can't, I can't make that much of a comment about it. Like, obviously, she's afraid for her life and, and, and afraid for others, but it would just be nice for them to get every bit of detail to help her and to help her own cause later on down the road. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the police would ever help her in this situation because they were still so angry about what happened to their fellow officer, but she at least wouldn't be incriminating herself through this interview. That's true. Yeah. Um, But you could see in the interview on video that Liesl is very conflicted. So while she's not explaining exactly what happened, she's also trying to appease the police officers. Like she repeats over and over again that she wishes she could help them more and how bad she felt for the murdered officer and his family. Like she says, I know what it's like. I have a loving family. So I couldn't imagine that happening to me. Like she's, She's empathizing here, and she does feel terrible, but it seems like she cannot do anything. Right. She also refers to Sardine and another person that she claimed was there. She said his name was Dave, 
and that they were part of a secret organization that didn't like to be talked about. And she, at this point, like I said, doesn't know Jonik has died by suicide. And I think this was, and this is totally my opinion, her way of telling police without telling them. Like, she's not giving their name. She says they're part of a secret organization because she wants to let the police know, like, these are two bad men. They're a part of something bad. And I can't talk about it. Yeah, she's dropping hints. Yeah, in her own... In her own way. <laughs> yeah, confused 21-year-old brain way, you know? And we really don't know why she wasn't 100% honest with the investigators. And, I, you know, I don't know what would have happened. Like, if she was 100% honest with investigators, I can't say for certain they would have helped her either. Because they were mad at her. But I do know that she's going to face a lot of consequences for this interview. And at one point in the interview, the detective asked Liesel if she had brought the boys to the lodge to be the muscle for her to get things that she wanted from her ex-boyfriend. They pressed her hard and asked if she had gone there to get back at Chiver. And she said no. But hours later, she would repeat the phrase back to the detective. And that would become the crux of the prosecution's argument. She said, two people are dead because of me. Like she... She felt guilty about that once they told her that Johnny was dead. And when asked why she said that, she said, just because I wanted a little bit of muscle to back me up when I wanted to go get my stuff. And then she started to cry. So the prosecution is going to use this over and over again during her trial. But it's quite interesting because she kind of repeats back the phrase that the detective said to her. She never used the word muscle. He used the word muscle. Right, so she just repeated it. And we know that she didn't invite them to go. No, and we know that she even had a talk with her friend to try to back out of that situation. Correct. But she, the friend was too afraid to say to them, hey, we're not doing this today. Yes. So there were attempts made, and it's on the record, at least, from, you know, well, yeah, I guess I'll call it a record for lack of a... A better term right now um that she did try to stop it even before it even, they even got to the lodge yes so i you know that it's very very interesting also i wanted to add uh something that i was just thinking about was you also have to recall in the very beginning when you said was that the police department a lot of people were mocking them a lot of different police departments for mistakes in the past of other cases and other things well that was the boulder police but like uh, what I think is this, I think that the Denver Police Department saw how under fire the Boulder Police Department was in the John Bonet Ramsey case, and they were thinking here, like, we can't right. repeat those same we wanna mistakes. Make, we want to make an example out of her so that no one ever dares attempt to try to kill a police officer in our department ever again. I know, and which you can't blame them for because you really do want to protect. Right. But I, I think that that might have something to do with it. I'm not saying directly, but like like you said, through the eyes of another department, you're seeing what happened there. You don't want to repeat that. You don't yeah. want that on your record. So I think you're right. I think no matter what, she is destined to just get the the book, you know? Yeah. You know, whatever's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And, you know, what's not making matters any better here is the fact that, you know, Liesel's mother and stepfather and later her father know that their daughter wouldn't have done anything like this. 
So they are very trusting of the process. And what I mean by that is when Liesl's mother was phoned to let her know that her daughter was in custody for the events that had just played out in Denver throughout the day. And she knew what was going on because she'd been watching on TV. Colleen Arabach was shocked. And on the phone with the detective who called to tell her this, she said, just tell her to tell the truth. Tell her that her mother says, just tell the truth. And she has no idea about the kind of trouble her daughter really is in. And she thought, of course, she didn't do anything wrong. So just tell the truth. And the thought process wasn't, let me get a lawyer. Honestly, I I think that the first thing you want to do is to say, just tell the truth, because you think the police department's on your side. But in this case, I feel like maybe it's not 100%. Even if this girl who, I mean, didn't plan for this to happen and isn't involved in this group, even if she does tell the truth, I don't think it would have went her way anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that this is just the mother being naive about the way this justice system is going to play out. And because her daughter's never been involved in anything like this before. So eventually it was found out who the other three people were that had been with Liesl and Johnig at the lodge that day. And one by one, they were all arrested and brought in for questioning. Demi was arrested at her parents' house And Dion had called the Denver Police Department and stated that he wanted to turn himself in, but he had no way of getting there. And he was at um, a local hotel, and he was picked up by a police cruiser. And the final man, Stephen Dupree, was eventually found 16 days later, hiding in a basement of his friend's house on South Federal Boulevard. So he hid for 16 days. In an interrogation room, Dion Gersey is asked about his friendship with Mateo Stjanig. He said that Stjanig was a pretty dangerous guy and that he was obsessed with weapons. At one point, he says, Teo was guns. He lived guns. And no matter how hard they pressed Dion, who really had no connection or skin in the game when it came to Liesl, He stated that she never said that they were going there to get back at her ex-boyfriend or let on that she had been angry at him. Okay, so now we even have kind of like a corroborating report here now. Yes. That that she had no intentions of that and never even spoke that at all. Correct. That she didn't want them to steal anything from him or that she wasn't angry at him and the intention was to get back at him. I mean, that's that's good, at least, that someone's coming forward and saying that. So. And in the interview, it was so obvious that the police wanted Dion to say that, and he would, didn't cave in on that fact. When asked why the driving situation was the way it was, Dion said that it had been that way. It was Teo's decision to do that. And he was a pretty dangerous guy, so whatever he said always went. And he guessed that Teo had wanted the arrangement to be that way because he wanted to sleep with Liesl. Which makes sense because the police were thinking, well, if she didn't really know this guy, why was she alone in a car with him? Why wouldn't she have just driven with her friend? But we know that Teo had chosen the driving situation to be this way. And it wasn't what the girls had originally expected it to be. In another room, Demi admitted that she had enlisted the help of the three men, well, really just her boyfriend and then later the two others, to help Liesl move out of the lodge. 
She would not name her boyfriend, Dion or Dupree, but she did name Mateos Jonig. She said that they did take things that belonged to Chiver and that the boys had wanted to scare Chiver. Once Demi heard from another detective that they had arrested her boyfriend and he was in for questioning as well, she stopped the interview and requested an attorney. Liesel then faced another round of questioning, and at this point it was 11.25 p.m. It was in that interview that she answered questions about her boyfriend, Sean Chiver, and what happened with them and why they were no longer together. And at this point, she's still referring to Dupree and Dion Gersey with fake names. And she had said that they were talking about hurting Chiver for her and that she had told them not to do that. Then she was asked if she had been taking things that didn't belong to her and she agreed and admitted that she had been. Yeah, but that the thing with that, though, is that that to me is like such a like a innocent like child well like an innocent childish thing to do like oh it didn't end that well he was doing he was using me so i just took back a couple of things that i bought for him yeah like to me that's not like it's not super malicious it doesn't deserve for detectives to like i like scope in on that yes you know what i mean like it was when it comes to her taking things from his room it's very different than I think the three men taking things from his room because she was taking items that she had purchased for him and she now wanted back. Like one item, for instance, was this snowboard that she had purchased for him on his birthday and she was waiting for him at the lodge. He never came home. She later found out that he spent the night with another woman. Yeah. So she wanted to take that back. So those are the kind of items that she was taking versus the fact that they were taking speakers from him that really belonged to him. Yeah. You know, like, so. My thing is this. It's complicated. Even in conversation, right? If I was to say to you, like, I don't even need to, if I, yeah, if I was having a conversation and, and I didn't say to you, oh, we had a falling out or, you know, or just, you know, it doesn't even have to be that detailed. But if you were to say in their presence, these other people, you know, um, you know, I didn't like that he used me for this or right. like it could just be one sentence. They're going to take that and run with it. They woke up and chose violence every day. These gentlemen, yeah. the, I mean, these people. Yeah. Sorry. Not gentlemen. Not gentlemen. <laughs> I always like I love the word gentlemen, but no. um, these people woke up and chose violence. OK, so all they needed to hear was, you know, he used me. Or yeah, the little I bought excuse. things for him. Any little, yeah, exactly. Any little excuse can be used as a way for them to act upon it. So it, I don't like how they're trying, like they're trying to make this narrative that she used muscle and all this other crap. I think it was just in conversation, a sentence was said, they took that and they ran with it and they use it as an excuse to blow it up. And you're gonna understand why they find it so important to establish this. Yeah. Later. Okay. So Chiver was also contacted during this time. A detective from the Denver Police Department found out that he was staying at the Hudson Hotel in Buffalo Creek, which is in the same town where the lodge is located. He said that he locked his room for that very reason and that he had nothing in his room that belonged to her, so she didn't have any right to be in there. So he's kind of just saying, yes, it's burglary if they went in that room. 
Now, there is something odd here that I have to explain, and this is a little suspect. When Liesel and Demi both made up names for Dion Gersey and Stephen Dupree, they made up the same and like a similar name. Uh, for example, one of the names they both made up was John. So, yes, I know that's a very common name, but it's very interesting that 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 was made up and Dave was made up by Liesel and Demi made up Dan. And the fact that Liesel was saying, oh, it was John and Dave with us and Demi is saying it was John and Dan with us, it sounded like to the police that maybe these two women had come up with a plan beforehand as to what to say if they were ever questioned by the police. That is a little weird. I'm not going to lie. But they weren't exact. They not either of them didn't have the same identical matching names. No, um, but I do find that weird. Now, if they had identical names, then I could say for certain that they talked about this beforehand, right? Right. I don't know. That's just me. Because the the go to would be to make fake aliases, or if you were trying to like protect yourself or protect others. Well, what I'm thinking is maybe like for John Egg, they were saying John, maybe, and then Dion. One said Dave. One said Dan. Right, that's possible. So it could just be a coincidence, but to the police, it seemed very incriminating. I mean, at first glance, it would be, yeah. It would be considered very bizarre that you have two individuals here that were there and witnessed everything. Have like stories. like To have like-minded stories. And they didn't have contact with each other since they left the lodge. So what they're saying is the last time Demi and Liesel spoke to each other was at the lodge because then the police chase happened afterwards and Liesel and Johnny were unable to get into Demi's apartment. So was this plan concocted back at the lodge? Oh, if the police stop us, this is what we say. And that's the police are going to run with that. And emotions are very high, as we've said multiple times, because um, Officer Vanderjat was killed. And the district attorney feels like they have enough information to and evidence and circumstance to charge her i i don't think that that's fair i'm saying that right now because she's a 21 year old woman who has never been in trouble with the law at all yeah what does she have to gain by being involved with those other people and getting in such trouble that she could be in prison now like why like it's not and it's not even uh, over anything super valuable. We're talking maybe a couple hundred, maybe a couple hundred dollars. But maybe. I think that emotions are so high that someone would have to pay for the life of that fallen officer. No, I understand. And she was the only one left. I get it. But I'm, but there were other people still there though. True, but not involved in the police chase. I understand. But this is no, like, I agree with you. This is like, okay, this is really taking it literal by like guilty by association. Yeah. If I have a gun, if I if someone has a gun to my head or even near me at all and says, grab the steering wheel, I'm going to shoot you, or I'm going to threaten the shit out of you, you're going to grab the steering wheel. Like, yeah. I just don't like how this yeah, is going. Yeah, you don't want to crash. Like, if she had any sort of past issues or any other past charges on her, like, I feel like, I'm not saying give her a pass, but if give her a benefit of the doubt. associations with skinheads, things right. like that. Like, just yeah. give her the benefit of the doubt here a little bit. Well, they're angry. They're upset. Yeah. So at the end of all of the interviews, the district attorney's office filed their charges. 
Demi and Dion were charged with first-degree burglary and conspiracy to commit first-degree burglary. Stephen Dupree, once he was found on November 28th, was charged with a lot more because he'd been found with a lot more. Uh, He was charged with illegal possession of a semi-automatic handgun, possession of a controlled substance, burglary, and parole violation. Liesl Allman was charged with menacing, first-degree burglary, conspiracy to commit first-degree burglary, first-degree assault, and first-degree murder. Once again, like I said, they just threw the book at her, and whatever sticks, sticks. Assault. Assault on who? Um, that is based off of the uh, when the firing of the, the weapon at the one officer. And murder. How? She's in the back of a cop car, handcuffed. So this makes how, no sense. How is a really good question. And eventually the charge would change from first degree murder to felony murder. Now follow I'm gonna get a little legal. Okay, you. I'll try. It's not my strong suit. <laughs> Me either. I'm gonna try. The crime of felony murder occurs when someone is killed during the commission of a felony or while the perpetrators are in flight. Now, that's okay. interesting um, because when did their flight end? Technically, the police chase did not end. And okay. then with the shootout, so they consider that in flight. So whether or not that death was intended, and that's the, the finality of it. So, again, the crime of felony murder occurs when someone is killed during the commission of a felony, the burglary, or while the perpetrators are in flight, whether that death is intended or not. All those who commit the felony, as well as any accomplices to it, are equally guilty under this law, even those who were physically absent when the death occurred. Okay. Time out. Is this a state law? Uh, it Felony murder is a state law in a few states. In the okay. States. I'm guessing that state is one of them. Colorado, Colorado. is one. Yes. Okay. I don't know if I like that. Um, Well, it's interesting because the law of felony murder goes back hundreds of years and is based on English common law. And ironically, English common law abandoned the charge of felony murder 40 years prior to the Liesl Allman case because they found that it was ridiculous. Because that means someone's not even present, but they could be charged with murder. Right. Exactly. Like... She can possibly be going away now for 20 plus years. Uh, no. Life. Oh. So you're able to charge somebody with with life in prison just because they were were in a car with somebody that was committing a, a, a heinous act. Yeah, and not even with them when they killed somebody. Right, because she wasn't even with them. Yeah, when does the legal definition of parted ways occur? You would think when when she was detained, when she was arrested, right? When she was detained and put in the back of a car, they can no longer be associated. She's arrested. Her flight had had ended, technically. I don't like that at all, because this is the thing. I feel like in some cases it could be very helpful. I guess if you're really trying to nail somebody to a wall here. Well, I would imagine that the law was created to deter people from committing felonies. Right, but that doesn't. Okay, that's not – people do it every day. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I just think that that's very aggressive. That's a very aggressive approach 
Oh, yeah. Especially in this case. Like, I feel like that's something that needs to be done by a case-by-case basis. Like, you're looking at her. You have to understand all the details and all the little nuances to this case. That is what should be the determining factor whether or not she intended to do bodily harm to somebody or and if she was an accomplice. Yeah. And she obviously, from what it looks like, she wasn't. She didn't want to be in that car. She didn't even want them there. Right. So I, I don't know where this is going except for an officer died. Let's just pin whoever we can pin. And that's pretty much it, which I think is wrong. And an injustice. And it just shows how the legal system sometimes is ridiculous. Well, according to Diane Carmen, staff writer for the Denver Post, the concept of felony murder has been controversial since its inception more than 200 years ago in England. Defense attorneys argue that it is capricious and applied unfairly, but prosecutors say that it is an important means to hold people accountable for participating in life-threatening criminal behaviors. So that is no, two sides of the What story. that is is, in my opinion, a, a layman that knows nothing about law. What it looks like to me is that's a way of padding your stats as a prosecutor to get people in prison when you want to win a case. That's what it looks like to me. When you want someone to, yeah, that's padding your numbers, to right? Take the blame for it. That you know, you want to be known as the top tier return, uh, top tier prosecutor. So that's what you do. That's you know, that's what it feels like. Yeah. But here, here, I'm just going to give a really quick example of something. If you are going to say that that was her involvement and that is what you're going to pin her for, meanwhile she never pulled the trigger, then I can make the argument that Dion should be charged with the same charges, okay, that she's being charged with. Because guess what? He knew. He willingly knew what kind of man he was bringing to that lodge and what he was capable of. And his involvement with his extracurricular activities with his friends make him just as accountable or more. That's so funny because that's the next thing that I was going to say. Yeah, that is I that completely is agree. And, what and it is. Even beyond that, if they're going to say that Liesel is guilty of felony murder, then technically Everyone that was there that day is guilty. Everyone in that hallway. Including Demi and including Stephen Dupree. Yeah. If you're going to apply that logic to Liesl, you have to apply it to everyone. Because who brought them there? So they were all involved in the felony, which was the burglary. And they all had a flight because they all left and were running from the police. The police just happened to follow the Trans Am instead of the Cavalier. Yep. So... It's all of them. So it's it's all so of them. So why are they right. only honing in on Liesel? Uh, because she was in the wrong car. And it was never, like, they're claiming that she orchestrated the burglary. And that's why she is the one who's being charged with murder. They're saying she was the mastermind behind it all. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. And I really hope she gets some, I mean, I know we're going to hear about it, but I hope she gets an appeal because I think that this is ridiculous. Now, we had covered, I don't know if you remember, because now we've covered so many cases. I know, I'm really like, bad. Sometimes I, they blur together. Yeah. But for Patreon, we covered a case. And remember, a girl told men, she had an ex-boyfriend who she was mad at. And she told men, this is how you enter into his house, because he lived in a really nice house. Okay. And this is how you enter. Um, No one will be home at this time. That is orchestrating something. And then the workers that were there at the house, they were murdered. That's right. I I do recall. And that is how you orchestrate something that leads to the murders. And I understand that she was charged with felony murder. Correct. But here, 
there's no well, because orchestration in that, right, of that. Because in that case, she was just as culpable as the guy that, that killed them. Correct. So that's where I could understand it. I get it. But here, I just don't. I She didn't have a gun in her hand. Like, I just don't understand that pro- that thought process. No. Well, during Liesel's seven hours at the police station, she did go back and forth. She stated that she did not intend for the burglary to happen. And then she said, Sean lied to me and made me feel like a piece of shit. And basically, I wanted to retaliate, I guess. He lied to me and I wanted to get my stuff back. So because she kept talking and talking and talking during these seven hours that she was at the police station... I think because she wanted to appease the police officers because she did feel bad that somebody died. She gave them enough rope to hang her with. Okay. But once again, that might be true. And now obviously detectives are going to love what they're hearing. Right. But you have to, I feel like as a professional, you are held to a higher standard. You have to try to look at the whole case and say to yourself, okay, we've had her here for seven hours. Whatever she's going to say might not even be the truth at this point. Yeah. Number one. Number two, it's a different story. Getting back at Sean is a lot different. And even even if she was to use the word using muscle to get back at Sean to gain access to his apartment is a lot different and completely separate than going out and killing police officers and shooting at other police officers in a high-speed chase. Like, it's just so different. Right, because, and well, then, even in the interview, she goes on to say that she was only getting her things out of his room, and Dion asked her what good things Chiver had in there, and she was afraid of him, and she didn't know what to say, so she said, well, I know he has speakers in there, but she didn't, her intention wasn't for him to take them. It was, she was nervous to be around these men. Yeah, it, this is crazy. I, I, I really, I mean, I like this case. I'm so sorry that, you know, all people have to die in here and it all happened. But, geez, this is insane because it is very complex. I think it's very layered. And I think that, like, it's really hard to sometimes to be on one side or the other, you know, because. Because you understand yes. how the police are feeling. 100%. But you also understand this girl is just kind of caught in the crossfires. It's a tragedy. Literally caught in the crossfires. Yeah. It's a tragedy when you have an officer die in the line of duty. But then I also feel like it's also a tragedy to end the young woman's life that had no involvement in pulling a trigger. Yeah. And essentially, you really are ending her life. If you're putting her away and she'll never see the light of day again. Well, I'm that's, going to... Now it's two tragedies. You're right. It is two tragedies. Well, now I'm going to add another complicated layer to this. Okay. In the days and weeks that followed the murder of Officer Vanderjat and the suicide of Matthias Jonik... Things did not settle down in Denver. Instead, they reached a fever pitch. The 20-mile police chase and the subsequent shootout terrified the population of Denver. The residents of the apartment came forward in the media and spoke about how scared they had been. There was not enough time for the police department to warn the residents to take cover, so bullets rattled past their homes, through their windows and into their walls, They had to wait on their stomachs on the floor of their apartment for hours, praying that a stray bullet didn't hit them. And that attack and death of an officer was not a one-time incident. The skinheads of Denver were taunting the police and committing acts of violence after November 12th. So it was not just the police, like, 
you know, wanting retaliation for what happened to Vanderjat, but now the skinheads want retaliation for what they feel is a wrong that happened to them. But this does not help Liesel's case. On Tuesday, November 18th, so six days later, Nathan Thill and Jeremiah Burnham, who were later known to be associates of the same group of skinheads that Mateus Jonig was, terrorized a West African immigrant, Omar Dia. Dia, who was a 38-year-old father of three, was waiting at a bus stop so he could go to his job, which was a housekeeper in downtown Denver. It was then that the two men started harassing him. In front of a witness, Jeannie Van Velkenberg, Dia was beaten, choked, and then shot by the two men. Phil did not want to leave a witness behind, so he also shot Jeannie Velken- Van Velkenberg. And she did not die, but was paralyzed from her wounds. That's so sad. In a television interview, 19-year-old Thill said this about the attack. I walked through the town with my gun in my waist. I saw the black guy and didn't think he belonged where he was at. He also later claimed that he was a warrior against people of color. Thill's first trial ended in a hung jury, but he was later convicted of first-degree murder and eventually sentenced to life plus 38 years and his accomplice received 12 years. I mean, I'm glad they're off the street, but I mean, like, look at that, for example. Look at that attack, right? Why does that guy only get 12 years? Right. Right? I know. We're, so, And now Liesl's facing life. Right. So we're, here, we're, look, look what we're dealing with. That is, a, that is a hate crime. That is a violent hate crime that resulted in death. So are you really going to tell me that an accomplice in that gets 12 years, but someone who is in a car in a quote-unquote robbery and then leads to the death of another officer, now that person's getting to, uh, life in prison. It just, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit the crime. It doesn't fit the crime. If you want to do anything, you tell, you know, you say that, you know, you charge her with robbery, if anything. I mean, I, I'm like, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate. If you're going to, if you're going to, if anything, maybe you could say that she took things from her ex-boyfriend and... You know he's gonna. He's saying the same that's charges that the that Demi right. has. I just well, it, it's just not the same thing. So then something absolutely terrible is is going to happen. That's going to further anger police, and it is completely justified because it's disgusting. Just hours after the slaying of Omar Dia, the same organization of skinheads slaughtered a pig, and left it in front of the police station. The police station um, that was home to the murdered officer, Bruce Vanderjat. The pig was laid on its side and spray painted on the animal's side, uh, like the side that was up, was a police badge and the name Vanderjat. The message was clear. There was no remorse. And to them, Vanderjat was a dead pig. Yeah, I mean they're gonna go after that, and they're How gonna. How horrible I mean, that's, is that? It's disgusting, but obviously they want they want to get that shock and awe factor from yeah. the community, so that's what they're doing. That's what they but, thrive off of. Yeah, of course. Um, but that is disgusting. And then a week after that, a call came into nine one one that a prowler had been spotted in a working class neighborhood of Denver. The officer came to check out the location. And when he searched the surrounding area, a man, later identified as a skinhead, popped out of a bush 
and emptied an automatic pistol at the officer. Luckily, he was a bad shot, and none of the shots hit him. But that was just another event in a war that it seemed the police and the citizens of Denver felt they were having with the skinheads. People of color were terrified to even leave their homes, especially after the murder of Dia. This was scary because these people weren't just angry, right? Meaning this neo-Nazi skinhead organization. They had a lot of gunpower behind them. And that's what was terrifying to the citizens of Denver. And according to a University of Denver religion professor, Carl Rachke, who had studied white supremacist groups, and he was interviewed by the New York Times, he said, the pigs said that they are ready to go to war with the police. This is the worst outbreak of skinhead violence that has happened anywhere. Nowhere has there been such a direct challenge to the police. And now the police are desperate to reestablish their dominance of the area. And here is Liesl caught in between it all. Yeah, this does not, all these events do not help her case because they consider her to have some involvement with these people. Correct. Um, though I don't think we need an analyst of any sort to explain what the pig represented. No, but I but, think it was a good way for him to, like, because he established, because he has studied white supremacist movements in the United States, he said this is the largest challenge to police that he had ever seen. I agree, but I'm just, I mean, I'm kind of making a joke of it a oh, little. Oh, I shouldn't have added that in there. No, no, no. I, I was kind of making Sorry, a joke about like it. Sorry, you didn't like my quote, John. No, it's okay. No, just because it's Damn. like, obviously, you know that that's a taunt. That is yeah, a taunt and a challenge to police. So, I mean, <laughs> but like when you said, I was just like, uh, yeah, duh. Right, I apologize <laughs> for my that, no, redundant okay. quote. It's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm Captain <laughs> Obvious, so it's totally fine. <laughs> So the Denver Police Department and prosecutor's office wanted to make an example out of anyone who was caught, and they needed to restore order and prove their dominance. And there was Lisa Allman, right in the middle of it all. So the felony murder charge, in a court of law, the prosecution would have to prove that Liesl's participation in the felony directly led to Officer Bruce Vanderjet's death. What they would claim was that if Liesl had never planned to bring the men along as muscle and rob Sean Shiver as payback for their relationship, then what happened that day would have never occurred. Because of the circumstances of the case, it catches fire in the national media. Legal experts weighed in and said that this case breaks new legal ground because Liesl had been in police custody when the murder and shootout took place. So can you be convicted of a crime if you are sitting belted and cuffed in the back of a police cruiser? Does this send a chilling message about what legal experts were calling the increasingly long arm of the law? And it was a big debate that was had on the national news, especially in the West. The trial would have to cut through all of that. Because of the felony murder law, the prosecution would not have to prove that she murdered Vanderjat or participated in the murder. The only thing they would have to prove is her involvement in the burglary. See, this is what I'm saying. It's, con- a bro- it's broken. It is broken. It's broken. To convict her for murder, they just have to prove 
she committed a burglary. Okay, so what you're telling me is then that's that, scary. Then that means that I guess all all the prosecutors in uh, in Colorado must have a hundred percent conviction rates, huh? Well, when it when it comes to murder, right? Little... Because that's exactly what it sounds like to me. <laughs> so, so now we're going to go into the trial. I'm sorry, it's guys. I'm, I'm, like, John's I'm getting a little heated. No, this is heated. good. That's what I knew this case yeah. was going to do because it's just wild and it's scary. You know, it's almost making me that the fact that that's the law is getting me more mad than the fact that she could or could not have involvement. Like, I'm still not necessarily writing her off 100%, but I think that, like, there, it's not fair game. Like, it's not fair game here. Yeah, and how you feel is later explained by a journalist, and I think it's it's put perfectly. Okay, so cool. We'll get there. Okay, so let's first go through what the prosecution is going to do. You're gonna lose it. <laughs> okay, oh God, okay. Demi and Dion were given immunity by the prosecutor's office if they agreed to testify against Lisa. Oh my God. Okay. And they did. Of course they did. Their testimonies were not super damaging, though. They were honest. And they said that she had been there and things were taken, but they were very direct in the fact that Liesl did not plan the burglary. But she had been present while items were taken, which she does admit to. Okay. But that is participation in a burglary. Right, but th- and, right, and that's all they have to prove. And that's all they have to prove. But, okay, if you're in a room that you just took a lock off of to get into, I understand that's breaking in and entering into a room, and I get that. But I don't even know the numbers here. But let, let's say she was like 5'5 five, five and 100 pounds. Okay. What What is she going to do? Push back a 6'4", 250-pound man with guns in a car? I what is she going to do? Say no? Like I, I just think that that is it, it's absurd. It, it, it's it's unbelievable that that you could even sit there as a prosecutor, well, a prosecution team, and say that that she knew the men that Demi was associated with, and she knew that night that Demi was bringing Dion, and Dion himself is a dangerous, violent man. So if maybe she would have chosen other people to help her with that move, it would have been better. Well, we know based on the story that she didn't want her parents there. I know. Listen, I know all of this. I'm just saying that's what the prosecution is arguing. I, I get that. I, I I do understand the fact that she at this point she did know who she was dealing with, and but I don't think she thought that it would go out of control like this and spiral yeah. into a fireball. No, I agree. Okay, then there's the testimony of Officer Jason Brake and his partner. Remember, they're the ones who arrested Liesel. Yes. Now there's a bit of a controversy. Involving Officer Brake's statement. Okay. Okay. Initially, the officer and his partner explained the story as I told you. Remember, they had asked the two suspects, Liesl and Jonig, to put their hands up. They arrested Liesl. And while the two other officers ran in search of Jonig, because unbeknownst to them, he had run into an alcove, Brake and his partner arrested Liesl put her in the back of their car and drove her to um, the furthest point in the parking lot away from the action. So that was the story of their initial statement. And once they were there, they were asking Liesl questions about Jonig 
uh, where he went, what kind of weapons he had, and she was not being cooperative at all. Well, the two officers, along with all the others who were at the Monaco Place Apartments that day, were questioned hours after the shootout, and that was when their initial statement was given. Days after their initial interview, Brake and his partner were interviewed again, and this shows up as an amendment to their original statement. And it is the subject matter of this amendment that they're testifying about in court. Okay, so what are they trying to change the story about? Tell me. In the amendment, Brake claimed that when he found Liesel and Jonig at the door of Demi Soriano's apartment, that just before Liesel put up her hands, she bent down a little bit as if to put something down. And then she put her hands up in the air and walked towards him. And then he proceeded to arrest her. So in this statement, he said that it was his opinion that she was holding the guns for John Egg, the guns that he later used. And that's why he was running down the alcove to get to the guns. And those were the guns that were used to shoot at police and then later kill no. Officer Vander. No, 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 no. That is a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. And because, okay, that is a conflict of interest because they are upset that their partner and their friend died. And you cannot make an amendment on that. They should know. I mean, they can, but they shouldn't make an amendment on that because you know just as well as I that eyewitness testimony is flaky at best. Yeah. And just because he's a police officer does not mean that that holds up over time that passes. Yeah, he doesn't have a better memory. You're not going to be able to remember more into detail than what you saw the first time. Your first account is most likely the most accurate. So don't sit there and tell me that you are going to amend that statement now because they're trying to put her away now. I don't agree with that. I think that's bullshit. Well, yes. There are two schools of thought in regards to this amendment and testimony. The first is that Brake made the amendment once he knew the information the prosecution needed in order to convict Liesl Allman. The second, and this is what Brake swears by in all the interviews that he does, and he gets quite agitated when asked about this amendment. He said it was an amendment because during the initial questioning, he was only asked about what Jonig was doing. And during the initial approach, that was the only question that was posed to him. However, it wasn't until days later and during the second interview that he was asked about Liesel's actions and behaviors. Either way, that's what the officers testified to, that she was holding a gun and they saw her put it down. And I think it is my opinion that if he would have saw something as damning as that, that whether they asked him about it or not, in the first interview, he would have brought it up, that she was holding a gun and put it down. You also have to... Keep in mind that if you have a if you told if you tell somebody to put the gun on the ground, you are dealing with a very serious, you know, you're confronting something extremely serious. You have an armed, you have multiple armed suspects at that point. Yeah, you're gonna have your gun drawn on whoever's there. You're gonna be watching to make sure that they don't try to pick that gun up off the floor. Like I just don't believe I don't believe this. Like this is just. Yeah. Okay, I know I'm getting a little crazy. So I'm going to comment down a little bit, but I am going to mention this. Of course, I want justice for a fallen police officer that died in the line of duty. Okay? Of course. But I think that we have to look at this with the most, with every brain cell in our head 
and just like think about that. Like if you're going to charge her, charge everyone the same way. Mm-hmm. And stop with this like tit for tat. Oh, I'm changing my amendment. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. They should have not even let that into court. Yeah. That shouldn't have even been allowed in court. The first written statement should have been what was used. And then they come to court to just talk about their first written statement. Yeah. That is it. That is how I feel about this. But of course, I want justice for a fallen officer. Yes. I just think that like that is something that needs to be looked at everything not just one little piece of it or, no i agree and to use the other two uh i want to call them i mean they're they're just as guilty as she is so the fact that they're gonna get get away scot-free with their testimony that did nothing at all to damage this right what's the point then they got away with everything and now she's left holding the bag i think that that's ridiculous it's complicated it's it, it is but it when is. you're a jury listening to that that's why I can't it's, be. I, that's why I can never. I can never do it. Because I would be that one hung jury that juror that won't bend at all when I think that this is ridiculous. Well, we'll get there too. Okay. So another witness that the prosecution was going to call was going to be Sean Chiver. However, that did not go the way that they had planned. Chiver himself was arrested on November twenty first, nineteen ninety seven, for theft, forgery criminal impersonation, and drug possession. When they searched the hotel room he had been staying at, they found pot, stolen purses, and three checkbooks, one of which was Liesl Almond's. Fantastic. It was found that he had a prior arrest um, that happened eight months before, and this is while he was dating Liesl Almond in Aurora, for attacking his common-law wife and swinging a vacuum cleaner at her that almost hit their five-month-old child. Well, I hope that they're not going to use this guy as as a witness because it's definitely not a credible... um... The prosecution isn't, but that almost hurts (laughs) the defense because then they could now go into what a bad person he is. But now they don't have the ability to do that because they don't open the witness up I get to cross-examination. Saying. I get it. That's Yeah, that's actually bad. So, and this is... In January of 1998, months after the events at the Monaco Place Apartments, Chiver had to tell the parents of a 13-year-old girl that he had gotten her pregnant. Okay. This guy is they crazy. Are, they're the couple that owned the hotel that he was staying at. This guy is crazy. Yeah. They tried to press charges against him. Later on, they will uh, move forward, but doesn't happen immediately. So that's why he doesn't testify against Liesel. Not really a great witness, especially when his history of theft and burglary was more extensive than Liesel's. Well, Liesel didn't have anything. I know. So then the prosecution, with the detective who was there on the stand showed a video tape of Liesel's two interviews with police. And this is where, after hours of questioning, she said some pretty incriminating things, like the statements that I told you about before. The defense is going to call witnesses who saw the car chase. One witness who had seen the door to the red Trans Am open and the laundry basket fall out, and they claim that this is when Liesel had been trying to escape, which she explained in the video of her interview with police, but Johnny was threatening her. So she did not. 
Another cab driver testified um, that he said when he witnessed the Trans Am get into an accident with the BMW, he saw Jonik hit Liesel. Okay. But on cross-examination, the cab driver did state that Liesel never attempted to leave the vehicle and he believed she had opportunity to. From his perspective. From his perspective. And also probably being a man that's not having a gun in his face. Yeah. I'm not trying to bring, like, you know, that whole thing No, into I it. know. I'm just trying to yeah. tell you this is no, what the I jury know. was hearing. <laughs> I'm just saying. I agree. Yeah. Well, John, yeah. you couldn't be a juror because you'd be like, no. I'd be like, dude, all you guys are talking bullshit right now. <laughs> I hate all you guys. I don't even want to be here right now. Where's the door? Let's find it. I'm leaving. <laughs> so they used some important evidence to help when it came to the claim by Officer Brake that Liesl had been holding the gun before she was taking custody. Because remember, he said he witnessed her put the gun down. Well, first, they showed a picture of Demi Soriano's front door, and it had deep gouges in it. It seemed that when Johnny couldn't get in, he was trying to break the lock of the door with the butt of his gun, meaning that he had been holding the gun the whole time. So there would be no reason for Liesl to have it. In addition, the gun Johnick had used that day, the assault rifle, had been fingerprinted, and Liesl's fingerprints were not found anywhere on the weapon. Right. So oh. she had never touched the gun. Great. That's what I thought. Liesl's defense attorney thought about putting her on the stand to explain that she was traumatized, confused, and scared for her life, and definitely under duress when those interview tapes were made. But she was nervous about how Liesl would have held up under cross-examination because she did fall kind of easily during the interview with police. In the closing statements, she said some very poignant things. If Mateus Jonig had lived, Liesl would not be sitting where she was. Rather, she would have immunity, like her friend Demi and her boyfriend Dion, and she would be testifying against Jonig. I mean, that's... That's accurate. And why was Liesl more culpable than Dion or Demi or Dupre? Yep. That hit from police for 16 days. Right. In a basement. It's like, oh, that's another thing. Evading police for 16 days. I just, <laughs> I, I just can't believe it, honestly. The jury, once given the case, had a hard time coming to a conclusion. But in the end, they believed that the actions of Lisa Allman that day met the legal requirements of felony murder. And she was found guilty. I mean, listen, I'm not surprised by that because the jury is going based on the letter of the law, which is that, that if you committed yeah. burglary, you committed murder. If, if there was a result in death during the actions of your crime, then yeah. If you're going based on that, which is ridiculous, then yes, you follow it to the letter of the law. And that's what they did. I don't blame the jury members for doing that. But at the same time, that law is ridiculous. They shouldn't have even had a trial. There shouldn't have been no trial. It's, it, it was a loaded... Really fired up. Yeah, because it's a loaded gun. It, it, you know, uh, figuratively. It's a loaded gun. It's like, why even have the trial if you you know you're going to convict her? Right. I mean, it's uh, it's easy. It's easy. But I do believe, though, that she should have took the stand because I think that would have helped her case a little bit. I agree. So in accordance with the law, 
the jury was never told prior to deliberation that their conviction came with a mandatory life sentence. Oh, that's even worse. So they weren't informed of everything. Well, legally they can't be. Oh, really? Because it would sway their opinion. Oh, true, true, true. Never mind. I take it back. Later, jurors would come out and say that they did not agree with the decision, but because so many people believed the police tape and it, it, they saw it, they saw it as overly damning that they stuck with the idea that she fit the requirements for felony murder and they gave in because they were tired of fighting. But in retrospect, they regretted their decision to not stick with the fact that they wanted to say that she was not guilty. That's very interesting. So the jurors came out later on and said, you know, we kind of made the wrong choice. Right. Many events occurred following the conviction. Days after being found guilty, Liesl Allman was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Two weeks after the trial ended, the judge that had presided over the case was appointed to the Colorado Supreme Court by Governor Roy Romer, as what many saw as him telling her, job well done. And months later, Sean Chiver was finally charged with the sexual assault of a child. The verdict caused a bit of an uproar in other parts of the country, but in Denver, Colorado, it made people feel safe again. They had been scared that they, the public, would become figuratively and literally caught in the crossfire between the Denver Police Department and the skinheads, who were at war with each other. They saw it as a way to show that if you cause a death, you will be punished. And hopefully that this would deter any shootout like this from ever happening again, especially because the incidents that followed um, what had happened on November 12th at the apartment complex were pretty horrific. And in addition to all of that, there was a very emotional police force and they were devastated at losing one of their own, and they were hell-bent on making somebody pay. And it all kind of ended with Liesl being put in prison. Now, Liesl Allman had a very tough time in prison. She had been put away because of her alleged association with skinheads. And during the time, they'd been at war with the Denver Police Department, and one of the police officers had been murdered. A West African man had been beaten and murdered, and there was an attempt at another officer's life, and she was kind of being blamed for all of it. So while incarcerated, she was terrorized by black and Hispanic inmates because they thought she was a skinhead, and she received very little to no safety from any corrections officer who was mad about the murder of Bruce Vanderjat. I mean, that's appalling, honestly. I mean, I mean, listen, I get it. Like, you, she should be protected in prison just like anybody else. If, yeah. if a fight breaks out, you do something about it. If something happens, you do something about it. No fights were stopped. I would sue the living shit out of everybody that I could once I got out of there. Yeah. And I would want reparations for every single day that I spent in there. Well, that's if she gets out. Uh, yes, I know. But I would make sure that I, I don't know how, but... That's, oh, God, that's so insane. In desperate attempts to have her story heard, she reached out to every journalist and news outlet she could. And three years into her sentence, she finally received a genuine response from Hunter S. Thompson. A lot can be said about Hunter S. Thompson. 
He is famous for many things. Some of them include the autobiographical novels Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, The Rum Diaries. The movie of that novel actually is what introduced Johnny Depp to Amber Heard. So in a way, we can thank him for that court trial. (laughs) And Thompson also famously infiltrated the Hell's Angels motorcycle gang, which he recounted in his book, Hell's Angels. And the attention from that stunt got him a job writing for Esquire, Harper's, and Rolling Stone. From there, Thompson created uh, an entirely new genre of journalism known as gonzo journalism. And the concept between gonzo journalism is that the journalist is not objective. No, just the facts, ma'am, from Hunter S. Thompson. He is the piece that he writes. And when you read his words, you could feel his passion and his call to action. That's what gonzo journalism is. Between this writing style, his drug and alcohol use, and his overall distrust for authority and government, Thompson became a larger-than-life persona that people either loved or hated. But he had a lot of power, and the people listened when he talked or wrote. So Liesl was very shocked by his reply. He told her that he remembered her case, and while it was happening, he had been following it. He had not been a fan of how he felt she was portrayed by the media or the felony murder law. He went on to tell her that he was going to call her lawyer and see what, if anything, he could do. Thompson was true to his word, and he dove headfirst into the research in this case. And the more he read, the more enraged he became. Liesl Allman's case became his passion project. Once he became involved, he tried to get Liesl a successful appeal. He enlisted the help of his legal team, and some very powerful friends to support him and to help fund the legal team and their crusade for Liesl Allman. And those very powerful friends included people like Sean Penn, Jack Nicholson, Antonio Banderas, John Cusack, and the list goes on and on. Wow. Okay. So see, there's something there because people aren't just going to do this if they don't think that there's, there's something wrong. Right. Her story was now getting a lot of public attention. Thompson held a large rally in Denver to spread the word about the appeal that his legal team was going to be filing on behalf of Liesl. And at that rally, which was very heavily attended, uh, many people now on Liesl's side, Thompson spoke about how, yes, Liesl was important in all of this. And he didn't want to lose sight of that. But there was a larger picture about the ambiguity of the law and how if they wanted to get you, they could. And this is what I think you were trying to say earlier. Okay. He said, it's not about her. It's about you. Because if this happened to her, it could happen to you. Yeah. That's, I mean, that is a good way to put it. And you're scared of everything right. you do. You could just find yourself in a weird predicament and all of a sudden... You're on trial for first-degree murder. Isn't that... I mean, it is scary. You shouldn't be held liable for the actions of another human being. Right. You can't control that. So in addition to the rally, Thompson, along with a writer at Vanity Fair, Mark Seal, covered what they believed were the atrocities of this case. Um, Because of the efforts, there's one, like, 
famous quote, and it's what I'm going to put in the description of this show, but I think it's so super telling. And uh, he wrote, the case of Liesl Allman, who first wrote me from prison three years ago, is so rotten and wrong and shameful that I feel dirty for just knowing about it. And so should you. I mean, you know, at its core, it's, it's an injustice. Yeah. It, re- it really is. I mean, it honestly, like, there's no other way to put it. Right. So because of the efforts of Thompson, Liesl went from evil conspirator to victim in the span of three years. The nation was paying attention to what was happening in Colorado. And it wasn't the first time and most definitely wouldn't be the last. By the time the appeal was working its way through the courts in 2004, there had been another change. The city of Denver was no longer at war with the skinheads, a contingency which seemed to have completely disappeared from the area. So there was no heightened tensions. There was no hysteria anymore. So they're going to look at the case through clear eyes. When the state Supreme Court heard the case, they ruled to overturn her conviction, and they ordered a new trial based on faulty instructions that had been given to the jury. It had been found that there had been an error in the instructions that were given to the jury in the legal definition of second-degree burglary. And because of that, um, that meant that the felony murder conviction also had to be overturned because the burglary was directly related to the murder conviction. So both were overturned. And by that time, it was 2005, and Liesl had been in prison for eight years. It was a long time. Rather than go to trial again, Liesl agreed to plead guilty to burglary and the other charges brought against her. However, this would not lead to the charge of felony murder because the burglary charge she pled to was unintended and a different degree. In an unexpected turn, Anna Vanderjat, who is the wife of, well, the widow of Bruce Vanderjat, wrote a letter to the court urging them to release Liesl. Now, in the past, Anna had come out and said that she believed that Liesl made bad decisions that day and she needed to deal with the consequences. But in the letter that she wrote to the court, she stated that she forgave her. And she said that writing that letter was a lesson that she was teaching to her daughter, that you can't carry the darkness of hatred in your heart because it will forever change you. I think that's very telling because the people that they were kind of at war with were people that had hate in their heart. And she's oh, yeah. choosing the light instead of the darkness. Yeah. Liesl was released on time served in 2005. But unfortunately, just two weeks before that decision was granted, Hunter S. Thompson died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And he was never able to see the gift that he had granted Liesl. That's sad. In the years that have followed her release, Liesl Allman has stayed very, very quiet. She in no way wants to be in the public eye. And because she pled guilty and she wasn't found innocent, there's no settlement or money whatsoever. She just has her freedom, which I think she's more than happy with. I guess so, yeah. (laughs) And it seemed like the lesson that Anna Vanderjat was trying to teach her daughter Haley worked. Because as of November of 2021, she was studying for her doctorate in psychology at the University of New Mexico. She told a Denver news outlet covering the anniversary of her father's death that one of the reasons she wanted to be a psychologist 
was to help people emerge from the adversity and find happiness after tragedy, like the one her family had experienced. She said, all we can do as human beings is work towards the good. As for the felony murder law in the state of Colorado, there has been an adjustment to the law as of April of 2021. So it had been that it was a class one felony as it pertains to first degree murder if a person commits or attempts to commit certain specified felonies and the death of a person other than one of the participants is caused during the crime and the change moved the crime from first degree murder to second degree murder, changing it from a class one felony to a class two felony and yes, the subject has to be sentenced as a cr- like through a crime of violence, but it it's not a mandatory life sentence any longer. I mean, that's good. So they reduce the sentencing of it. I mean, but that's the law good, does but stand. I still don't. I still don't like the law in general. Yeah. But I I think that that is a decent adjustment. Right. Uh, from what it was, because I mean, what it was was insane. I agree. And the um, sponsors of that bill worked with Liesl Allman and that Senator Pete Lee and Representative Mike Weissman. This case is an intriguing and heartbreaking one. And there are so many victims due to senseless acts of anger, hate from a violent group of broken individuals that choose to be a part of an ideology of intolerance, um, victims of our justice system and it's all very sad but as Haley Vanderjat said all we can do is work towards good and making changes and learning life lessons but I mean <sighs> it's hard and, and you know she and, and I think that um, what she said was accurate you can't heal or move on when there's hate and revenge in your heart right yeah and I think that that both you know that is how Liesel's going to have to move on. That's how the Denver Police Department's going to have to move on. And that's how the Vanderjat family's going to have to move on. But it is just crazy circumstances that led to this case. And it's very complicated. Like you said, there's so many layers to it. Yeah, there is. There really is. It was like a perfect storm hit Denver. Yeah. Okay. Whew. That was really uh, intense. That wasn't intense. Sorry, I got, guys, I got heated. <laughs> no, that's good. I knew that was going to happen. Oh, man, yeah. So before we go, we just want to say thank you to our new Patreon subscribers or people who have upped their pledge. So we just want to say thank you to Ashley Felton, Danielle, who upped her pledge, Chris, Jennifer Whitaker, Hannah Cortade, Mildy, Anne Bradbury, Julia McIntyre, Ali Rodriguez Goodman, Ella, Rachel, who upped her pledge, Lisa, Sarah Griffiths, Poppy Gale, Brittany Felicello, Vilma, Christy Adcock, Kelly Yarborough, Diana Raposo, Katrina Button, Janaeus Marti, Tracy Roussel, Lynn Olive, Annie Garcia, Valentine Bourgeois, Kelly, Chantrell Royster, Brittany Based, Mel Loves to Knit, Leah, Madeline Abel, Seamus, Sharice Gallardi, Caitlin, Alice Mauser, Shamia Ali, Brandy Garza, Ashley Miller, Macy Stewart, 
and Kristen Dastasio. Thank you guys so much. If I pronounce your name wrong, please let me know and I can just try that one one more time. Yes, let Kay know if she made a mistake. Please John do. loves when I make mistakes, so no. let me know. It's just funny. It's just funny. Okay, guys. Well, until next time, don't park next to vans. Bye, Bye guys. guys.